VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, May the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So big thanks to Tim Powers for sitting in for a couple of days while I was away. And we all know that the Outer Ring Road was closed on Sunday for the annual cleanup, which is really unfortunate that we have to take it to that extent. 2,500 bags of garbage taken out of the median or along the side of the road, just between Kenmount Road and Logie Bay Road. So unbelievable stuff. So 500 bags less than last year, but still 2,500. Too many. Well, that's the end of the road for the Newfoundland Growlers. They dropped a double over T, double overtime loss in Game 6 to the Florida Everblades. They're out. But the Rogues move on in the one game playing, move on to play the Georgia Soul, who were the top team in their division this year. It's the best of three. Series also allows way. I don't know if Tim made mention of any of this stuff, but Canada men's world hockey champions. Now, it's the furthest thing from best on best. There was a lot of unknown hockey players competing for all the teams in Latvia. Latvia was really the sweetheart of the tournament. They win a bronze medal, their first medal in any major hockey tournament ever. So that was pretty thrilling, and they have beautiful uniforms. But Canada beats Germany in the gold medal game. World champs. All right, anyway, let's go. All right, one of the iconic landmarks in the world is Big Ben. The world's first four-faced chiming clock first started ticking today, this date, 1859, and of course would not be able to keep up with tracking the fastest people on the planet. The world record in the men's 100-meter sprint was set on this date in 2008 by Jamaica's Usain Bolt. He set the record that day at 9.72. There was a bit of a tailwind, but it's still called a wind-legal run because the wind was only at 1.7 meters per second. He went on to break his own record in 2009, which now sits at 9.58 seconds. The world record for the women, held by American Florence Griffith Joyner, set back all the way in 1988 at 10.49. All right, so... Time is of the essence. If you listen to people who are keeping an eye on any of the proposals regarding wind to green hydrogen. So talk about two worlds colliding. In the downtown core of the city of St. John's, we have the Energy NL Conference, and then we also have, across the street, the Canadian Meteorological and Oceanographic Society Congress, looking at a bunch of things. There's a collection of climate scientists, meteorologists, oceanographers, and we'll get to what they were talking about. It was basically a lot of talk about weather forecasting to begin the conference, but talk about the contradictions. What? One talking about energy, and make no mistake, even though it became an awful lot of talk about hydrogen, there was indeed still going to be some oil discussion in the offings. But let's talk about some wind-related matters. Right off the bat, I didn't know this was coming, but apparently there has been some amendments made to the accords between the federal government and Nova Scotia and this province to try to promote offshore wind. Okay, they renamed the regulator boards. Now what was once known as a CNLOPB, the Petroleum Regulator, is now the Canada, Newfoundland, and Labrador Offshore Energy Regulator. Isn't it interesting that NOAA, was the oil industry representative for group. Now they're Energy NL. Why? Because there is a transition happening. I have no earthly idea when there's going to be such thing as peak demand for oil. But the vibe in the room, a sold-out Energy NL conference, really was dominated yesterday by issues regarding hydrogen. A couple of things. So uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro CEO Jennifer Williams made a mention of a couple of really fascinating things yesterday. One is that there's going to be a, a need to double output to meet demand in the coming years. 
Where have I heard that before? So I don't know if there was any follow-up questions based on this. Why do we think demand is doubling? Based on exactly what? Industrial developments? Population growth? Really? I mean, the population of the province has grown, but we're still in and around 525,000 people. So they need to double electricity? I don't know. Talking about sitting on thousands of megawatts of hydro, which is absolutely true. Still a lot of unknowns regarding the Muskrat Falls, but I assume she's looking up not only at the Upper Churchill, but at Gull Island and its 2,225 megawatts. But interesting stuff. She also goes on to talk about that hydrogen may indeed play a role in provision of energy for us. Okay. One of the concerns that people talk about, when it's, whether it be green hydrogen or otherwise, is the cost to produce. And it does come with a whopping big cost. Let's look at the three different types of hydrogen, whether it be gray or blue or green. Compared to gray hydrogen, blue hydrogen can be over 40% more expensive to produce. Green hydrogen can be 32% to nearly 300% more costly. This all according to Canada's Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development. It has long been one of the things that didn't really worry me about any of these wind to hydrogen projects because the business model wasn't based on my need to consume their product. It was based on whether it be in Germany or, or wherever they can find a market for it. So even when the conference opened yesterday with one of the executives from ExxonMobil talking about production, talking about exploration, of which they're going to entertain some this summer, but very quickly moved on to talk about their windmill lubricants. Fascinating stuff. So even inside the world of the oil companies, uh, two things there. They know there's going to be transition. I don't know when peak oil demand will be reached. But they know that their customer is going to be looking for different alternatives in the years to come and what role they can play. In addition to that, they do dovetail in some form with the folks across the street at the Meteorological and Oce Oceanographic Society Congress. Because oil companies, you might have your own opinion on what climate change might mean and what causes it. The oil companies are quite clear. They think their role is absolutely at the top of the heap. Don't take it from me. Take it from the oil companies themselves and some of the testimony they've offered in particular to the American Congress committees. But anyway, let's get into it. Hydrogen. The question will always be, what's in it for us? And what's the implication to you as an individual taxpayer? And those are the obvious questions that we will all ask ourselves. So there was eight different proponents made what would be called, I guess, their five-minute elevator pitch as to who they are, what they have planned. One notable was pattern energy for Argentia. When people have, I think, justifiable concerns with crown lands. Now, thankfully, we've landed on a place where the crown lands will be leased, not bought, because if their business goes sideways, we can't have them having full ownership of any crown lands, so they're going to lease it. There are questions about water royalties and for full capital investment to be recovered by the company before we get a royalty on the water, which is still pennies. But Pattern is different. Pattern has private land owned by the port that they would use to put their wind project into play. No crown land. So that's one I think kind of stands apart from the others. Then we went on to hear from a German company called Abowin and their plan out and come by chance. North Atlantic is in business here with something that will be anchored in uh, come by chance itself. Then it goes on to talk about Brookfield Renewable Partners in Placentia Bay. They've got really strong financial backing because they have uh, monies coming from an absolute giant in the business, Brookfield Asset Management. Then it's about Red Earth Energy, their project for uh, Trinity Bay and a partnership they've struck with Miakopec First Nations for that particular project. Everwind Fuels and the Buren Peninsula. Uh, then the Exploits Valley Group, which is really bullish in the minds of folks, particularly in Botwood. 
And then it goes on to the one that gets all of the traction, all the negative press, all of the pushback is World Energy GH2 on the Port-of-Port Peninsula. Through the various phases, in addition to the first phase of 164 wind turbines, talking about $12 billion. Now, demand for hydrogen is up. There was an article I read the other day. It was an opinion piece about probably tempering what we think might be in it for us regarding wind to hydrogen projects. Now, it did omit the fact that these projects here are using a renewable source of energy. And in this, t in this case, it's wind. So they talk about emissions for hydrogen in the last number of years has outpaced the aviation industry, but all of those projects were based on fossil fuels. So there is a big conversation to be had. There has never been a wind to green hydrogen at the scale that's being proposed in this province anywhere in the world. So the conversation will be, you know, how important is it to get in on the ground floor to satisfy the markets? But again, those markets, in large part, are just going to be profits that are gobbled up by the proponents, whether it be John Risley and his group or anybody else. So if and when it becomes, as Jennifer Williams said, the quiet part out loud, that we might be buying some hydrogen to meet demand, even though I have no earthly idea where the concept of is doubling demand, consequently the need to double output, but do we really want to be in on trying to buy some of the most expensive energy, which is green hydrogen? You know, I gave you the numbers. It's 32% to 300% more expensive than gray hydrogen. So how do we satisfy those important questions? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to the province? We don't know when the second round announcement will be for proposals moving forward. Sometime, I guess, in the next four to six to eight weeks, we'll hear from the minister responsible. I think we're going to hear from Andrew Parsons this morning, so I'm looking forward to that chat. But where do you put the importance? Is it in construction jobs? And, of course, if many of these projects come to pass, including some potential projects in the oil business, we don't even have the trades to satisfy what the job demand will be. So people have two schools of thought. If you're a representative of trades in L, the most important thing is the creation of jobs. And their argument is clear. Not only putting people to work, but when you put uh, money in people's pockets, it's vastly different than putting money in the provincial treasury. Because at that point, yes, indeed, it does go to fund the programs and services we require, but there's always going to be legitimate concerns about how government spends our money. So what do we actually reap from hydrogen? I'm not to say that I'm opposed to, or, but I do have questions about because I think there's lots of questions looming when there's never been projects of this scale that have been executed anywhere in the world. So where do you think the importance is? Now, the oil business, it's not lost on any of us because we understand oil, right? We've been in the oil business for a long time here in this province. And some of the potential out there, so uh, Paul Barnes from the Canadian Association of uh, Petroleum Producers says there's going to be about $1.5 billion invested this calendar year, most of which, of course, are the two most notable exploration projects. Exxon's going out, but it's BP. Energy giant British Petroleum. They're going out to look at what might be the concentration of hydrocarbons in Cape Friels. The industry worldwide says that Cape Friels is the number four most attractive, most lucrative, and most barrels in any production field anywhere in the world. So when we look at Hibernia, for instance, and it was just last year that they exceeded producing one billion barrels, we know what that's meant to the people of the province for jobs and royalties. The Beta Nord project that Equinor is eventually going to make a decision on is Hibernia times three, possibly. Cape Friels might be Hibernia times five. So, you know, and then you juxtapose all the talk about whether it be wind, offshore or onshore, 
hydrogen and that we might be a customer to meet demand, says Jennifer Williams, to talk about oil, which will continue, even though it was really dominated by hydrogen yesterday at Energy NL. But then the question will be, you know, if you look at the International Energy Association, they say there is absolutely no need for any, or new, pardon me, the International Energy Agency. They say there's no need for any new fossil fuel projects anywhere in this world if we're going to meet those targets of 1.5 degrees Celsius, the limit that people talk about regarding climate change and global warming. So isn't it amazing? Right there, across the street from each other, talking about the impacts of utilization of fossil fuels, and nothing is perfectly clean, nothing. Even if we're talking about windmills, even if we're talking about solar panels, even if we're talking about electric vehicles, because all those conversations are happening. But sometimes people, whether or not they use the unfortunate language, which is completely ridiculous to say, you know, green oil. There is no green oil. There's not really perfectly green anything. Even if you look at the possibility for Canada to play a global supply chain uh, market control, because we do have the critical minerals and the rare earth minerals right here in this country, and we can and should be doing more. It doesn't matter if you want an electric vehicle or if you have any consideration of, or you think they're stupid, or you don't think they'll stand up to Canada's winters. But these things are all happening. But where are the answers to what's in it for us? What's in it for you? So let's talk about that. But amazing stuff. And don't forget, come the 1st of July, one thing that is coming to pass, if the federal government has their druthers and they don't pay any attention to the Atlantic Premier, so we're asking for a delay in the implementation of their clean fuel regulations. And just to remind you what that is. So they're talking about the fuels that are going to be used have to be 16%, I think, 16% lower than 2016 levels. Uh, that's all about carbon intensity. But it comes with an enormous cost to the consumer. If this regulation and the federal carbon tax comes to pass on the 1st of July, we can see a 17 cent increase overnight in the price of fuel. Now, the conversation also should indeed extend to why the Atlantic Canadian premiers are asking for this, this extension or this postponement or delay. We only have one refinery, so so much of what we consume has to be imported. But yet the refinery and the Irvings are making out like absolute bandits. Between 2019 and 2022, margins for the Irvings, refineries in Atlantic Canada went from 10%, 10 cents per liter to just about 50, per, 50 cents per liter. So how and why? are me and you going to shoulder the complete financial burden of any clean fuel regulation and or federal carbon tax. So there's a lot there if you want to talk about it. We can do it. And one of the stubborn things that the government, the back of Canada, and everyone's having a hard time wrapping their mind around and getting control over is the price of food. I know I talk about it a lot but because I think we all feel the exact same type of pain, or most of us who have affordability issues. When you pull into the parking lot of your favorite grocery store or farmer's market or anywhere else, the prices are still completely out of control. So it would be nice to see municipalities in Newfoundland and Labrador take on this task. To know how municipalities look at whether it be livestock or backyard farming or homesteading because apparently a lot of the decisions, lots of the bylaws and or rules and regulations are adopted from a document that is before Confederation. So the world has changed. You know, whether it be chickens or livestock in Summerford or a Shetland pony or the want to have chickens or the want to have root vegetable crops where you are. Some of the way that municipalities approach this simply isn't working when people are struggling when they walk in and out of a grocery store with just what they left behind with their hard-earned money to get very little for your $100 bill that you put on the table. So I'd love to see MNL take that on as their next big initiative. 
because we've got to figure this out. And we're, not, we're simply not doing enough. We're certainly not moving in the right direction. So that obviously brings in huge questions that we can talk about this morning if you're so inclined. But that's to tighten it up. Not move the subject matter too, for add too much to the top of the program. But that requires you to chime in because I want you to answer those questions for me. What's in it for you? Where do you think the focus should be? Whether it be on energy-related matters or food production-related matters. And we know now, given some of the good work done by, for instance, the Food Producers Forum, we probably produce way more than we thought we did. But the opportunity to produce more is right there in front of us, and we have to seize it. All right, a couple of quick ones before we get going. This one has long been really quite stupid. And it's been the political standoff regarding the dilapidated, to the point of near ruin, for the Prime Minister's residence at 24 Sussex Drive. So for the life of me, I can't understand why we didn't just allow the Nas National Capital Commission, that's the federal body responsible for oversight of official residence, whether it be Stornoway or Rideau College or Cottage and or 24 Sussex. It's been the home for 10 prime ministers. It's been there for about 150 years. The last resident, of course, was pri Prime Minister Stephen Harper. They say some of the work that has to be done, whether it be with the obsolete mechanical, heating, electrical systems, but of course it's rat infested. They say the work, the price tag is about $36 million. Total replacement value, about $40 million. I, it, look, I don't know how the parties have allowed this to happen. It's embarrassing because one party or another, your leader may indeed be the tenant of that residence in years to come. So it's not about Justin Trudeau getting cozy uh, surroundings. It's not about the potential for Pierre Poliev to have comfortable surroundings. It's about the fact that that's the home of the prime minister who would receive international delegations, and yet we can't even do it at this mansion with the setting on the Ottawa River, and now the construction work is going to be done, but no commitment to actually refurbish it so you can actually live in it. But I guess they're doing some work on it. That, But again, if you're an NDP supporter or you are a liberal or a conservative, some of that stuff we need to be able to shelve when we talk about things that are just simply apolitical, right? Like repairs of a, the home of the prime minister, which is 24 Sussex. Anyway, you want to take it on? Air quality warnings for parts of the south coast of the island here this morning. Canagra Peninsula, Buren Peninsula, Southern Avalon, of course, all based on the smoke making its way from the wildfires in Nova Scotia, to which we have sent two water bombers. So while we look out for our friends and worry about them in Alberta or Nova Scotia, we're playing our part. Anyway, I wanted to get to one quickie, but let's get to the break. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That can only happen if you join us live on the air. Don't go away. Well, welcome back to the program. Well, obviously a very emotional evening last night in the city of Mount Pearl when the council had their meeting. Their deputy mayor, Nicole Kylie, was very seriously injured when she was struck by a vehicle just simply standing outside a pharmacy, Shoppers Rockmont on the Marchant Road. So the injuries are serious. I don't have an update for you, but we know it's going to be a long road to recovery. In addition to the physical pain and anguish, it's also going to be financially troubling for Miss Kylie and her family. Joining us on line number four is a lady who was established to go fund me for Nicole Kylie, that's Carla Hayward. Good morning, Carla. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So this is simply awful. And for me, right off the bat, like when I heard the story but did not know who the victim was, in this case, Nicole Kylie, it just does paint a very clear picture with you do not what do you do not know what's around every single corner regarding your public safety. This comes out of absolutely nowhere, and now Nicole Kylie's life has changed forever. 
Absolutely, Patty. That's, you know, one of the most upsetting things about it is that this can happen in an instant and forever change your life. One of my friends was walking down a military road there one day last week when there was another incident of someone had lost control of their car. Apparently it was a medical-related issue. And he said, had there been anyone on the sidewalk, this story would be doubled because we'd be talking about people killed just walking down the street and not knowing what, uh, what hit them. Uh, I don't know if you can share very much or if you even know very much, but what do we know about Nicole's status? I know her privacy is paramount, and I don't want to get too far into it, but can you share any just vague update if she's doing okay, she's stable, or what the case may be? Yeah, and I checked in with the family just to make sure that, you know, what I said was good with them and whatnot. But they wanted to share that she is stable. Um, She is still in ICU. Um, You know, there's been multiple procedures over the last week and whatnot. Um, And they did want me to pass along. And if you know Nicole, you will understand why this makes sense. Um, That she isn't, you know, uh, talking or truly conscious yet. And so a lot of folks are still calling and texting her phone and whatnot. And we know that Nicole will want you to know that she's not ignoring you. (laughs) And I know that sounds a little silly in this situation. But if you know Nicole, that will totally make sense to you. Absolutely. So I don't know what kind of target you have set. We do know that when we talk about recovery, it's not just going to be her physical and emotional uh, recovery, which is going to be a very long road, obviously, given some of the rumors we've heard about what happened to her, but mm-hmm. some costs associated because when you can't work, the bills don't stop coming. So what's the hope here? Um, we're not setting a hard number either. I mean, you know, you start out and you set a goal in your head and then we're seeing just such an incredible outpouring of support for Nicole. Um, and we don't know the full extent of her injuries yet, but even if, you know, we did at this time, we know there's going to be so much, just like you mentioned, Patty, you know, there's the lost income, there might be retrofitting that's required, or even just, you know, the gap between when something happens and when, you know, income sources start to come in and whatnot. So we really just want to provide her with as much security and take that burden off her shoulders as much as possible. So the GoFundMe is there and, you know, while we haven't organized anything else formally, if I know there's folks that are like, you know, what else can we do? Is there something more we can do? So those people can absolutely reach out to me and we can see what happens going forward. Well, good on you for doing it. I'm not going to be surprised if there's going to be a lot of people willing to commit some money to her recovery. Anything else you'd like to say this morning, Carla, specifically where they can find this GoFundMe page? Yeah, so you can just search Help Nicole Kylie as she recovers or, you know, happily it's all over Facebook and whatnot. And uh, there's a button on that page where you can contact me directly if you wanted to talk about, like I said, anything more beyond that. I appreciate you doing this and thanks for making time this morning, Carla. We all uh, are sending positive vibes Nicole's way. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I mean, it just really, truly is remarkable. You know, we hear of people who are uh, in ill health, and it might be symptoms that have been developing and worsening over time. And then, of course, you hear these stories where you are just innocently standing around, and the next thing you know... Things have changed forever. And not to be too philosophical or what have you, but it really does put some perspective to uh, living it out to the fullest all the time because you just don't know what's around the corner. Man, oh, man. Uh, Let's go to line number one. Wayne, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. I wanted to phone you and say thank you because uh, Friday evening at 4 o'clock, there was a wheelchair and a porta potty 
And a, a bed frame. A bed rail. Bed rail. Uh, at, uh, brought to Placentia Hospital. To Placentia Hospital. He gets a little emotional. I understand. And so if you didn't hear Wayne's call, uh, Wayne uh, is an amputee. And to be discharged, he needed a wheelchair that satisfied the hospital's requirements for you to be able to make your way home. They were unable to provide one. You called us, and thankfully someone stepped up to the plate, not only with the wheelchair, but with other supports that you're going to need at home. So that's good news, Wayne. I'm glad it happened. Okay. Now, Patty, the wheelchair and the equipment that we had gotten um, is on a, only on for eight weeks okay but we thank god he got home i'm i'm very appreciative and i want to thank you from the bottom of my heart we're happy we could help i'm sorry who am i speaking with what's your name oh sorry mary harris i'm sorry say I'm that again wife. This, this is my wife we got married last uh, november Congratulations. So, so I'm glad you're home. I don't know what we'll do or be able to pull off for when eight weeks come and go, but keep us in the loop. If nothing changes with a permanent solution and a wheelchair that you're going to be able to keep you on eight weeks, you get back in touch with me, whether you call me or send me an email or what have you, and we'll yeah. go back to the drawing board. We actually yeah. sent you an email this morning. Oh, you did. I've, I've, I haven't been here since Friday, so I've got hundreds of emails I'm going to have to pour through today, and I'll, I'll look for it. Yeah, okay. No, we know you hadn't been here because I we called Monday. We Monday, and, and there was uh, another gentleman, and then the one that uh, first takes the calls, um, We uh, he said that you wouldn't be until Wednesday, and we said, well, we'll wait to talk to you. Well, I appreciate you doing exactly that. I'm glad you're home, Wayne. And once again, when the eight weeks come and go, we're leading up to the uh, eight weeks, let's get back in touch and make sure that we can get you something permanent. Yeah, I got uh, my nephew uh, came and picked me up, and uh, yesterday he came and he fixed up uh, part of the wheelchair ramp. That was already in place. Already in place. And I got a nephew coming in now today to uh, do my sub pump in my basement for me. So uh, I got two that's taking care of me, along with my wife. Well... I know it's going to be a tough road for you and your wife, but things seem to be moving in a bit more of a positive direction. Hopefully that gives you reason for uh, some comfort and some optimism. And again, when we can help a little a bit more in the next couple of weeks or the next number of weeks, yeah. you get back in touch with me, whether it be email or otherwise, Wayne, and we'll see what we can do. Yeah, okay, Patty, thank you. You're most welcome, sir. Good luck. Okay, Wonderful have a day. Take care, Mrs. Harris. You too. Take care. Alrighty, bye-bye. Well, that's good, and, you know, and it's not me, it's you. Someone else provided that. We just gave him the platform to make his plea. All right, let's try to take the breaks on time. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking artificial intelligence. Again, something that's so new and evolving so quickly, I'm not so sure we've wrapped our minds around what artificial intelligence means. It used to be the worry was, well, it's going to replace humans and their jobs. But I think the risks, as articulated by people who are the inventors of artificial intelligence, may be far and wide more reaching or far-reaching than we've talked about, just like losing your job, which is bad enough. But some of the other risks that have been articulated are really quite something. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Best kind today. Thank you. How about you? Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, first off, I'd like to uh, 
extend my uh, uh, best wishes to Nicole Collie and her family for a speedy recovery for the accident that she had there a few weeks ago. Yeah, just terrible. I mean, I hesitate to say or talk about the rumors about to the extent for injuries, but apparently they're serious enough where it's going to be a very, very long road to recovery. So I extend my best wishes and positive vibes as well. Terrible story. Yeah, likewise. Um, I want to talk about artificial intelligence. Okay. Uh, it's a pretty big subject. And, uh, you know, governments and private industry are, are debating now bringing in regulations and uh, what, to what extent regulations uh, should cover different aspects of artificial intelligence. But I think, you know, at the at the... One of the core uh, principles of artificial intelligence and data gathering and assimilating data and correlating data is the ability to predict uh, an event into the future, whether it's a day from now, a week from now, a year from now. And this has wide applications uh, in various disciplines, you know, in medicine or marketing, uh, insurance industry, things like that. And purposeful misinformation or disinformation campaigns. And look, just let me set the stage by saying this. You know, we've arrived at a place where it's all the rage to talk about the most extremes, whether it be fears associated with one technology or another or fears inside the whole culture war waste of time that we're engaged in here. But don't take it from Colin. Don't take it from me. When we hear from people like Jeffrey Hinton, who's referred to as the godfather of artificial intelligence, or OpenAI uh, Open CEO Sam Altman, when speaking in front of the U.S. Senate Committee yesterday in Washington, D.C., they are putting their worries on the top of the pile. They're the folks behind it. So if they think it can very quickly run amok, and it's not just about replacing jobs, about things that can be extremely serious, even making references to the escalation of nuclear war, you know, or the nuclear arms race, I suppose, or the potential for nuclear war, it's not us saying it. It's the actual folks who are the creators of and the managers of and the keepers of this technology. So don't think that we're trying to spread fear. They're doing it on their own. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, with, with uh, respect to the uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear war scenario that you just raised, these machines are getting smarter and smarter, these deep neural uh, networks and deep learning they're, they're, it's an iterative process. You know, it's like, um, you know, you create an algorithm for uh, chip, uh, playing chess, right? And the uh, the algorithm, uh, the AI platform will play chess as a novice in the beginning. And it loses constantly. But it's learning from its mistakes, and it's learning rapidly. And within a very short time frame, it could be the grandmaster. And that's what's happening now with, like, Google and uh, and some of these other uh, companies that have these AI platforms, they can be the grandmaster at chess. In and uh, in, within within a week, it, it can learn so quickly that it, that it can it can think hundreds of or thousands or millions of moves into the future. Right? Yeah, autonomous growth based on the, their own algorithms means that very quickly, if not already, the genie's out of the bottle. Like how you stuff this genie back in said bottle when the programs, the technology already is learning at a pace that is breakneck, certainly exponentially faster than any human being or any collection of human beings on the face of the earth could keep up with. So if that's the case, and they're telling us it is, again, this is coming from the industry. 
then there's got to be some cap on what they're referring to the AI arms race. There's got to be some preventative legislation and medicine put to play before it gets away from us in full. I mean, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but every time I read about it, I'm thinking, jeepers, creepers, what have you done to us? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and some of this uh, from private industry is, um, yeah, we want to be a stakeholder in, in, in uh, having hearings with the government and, and legislators, but we want to be able to... Uh, have some um, portion of this in self-regulation. We want to be able to regulate our own industry. And uh, to me, just uh, on its face, that raises a number of red flags because private industry is not looking out for the public interest. They're looking out for uh, profit. And uh, and there's nothing wrong with profit in private industry. It's, it's what creates jobs and contributes taxes to the, to the government so we can all benefit. But it's um, they have a, 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 an obligation to shareholders and there's a stock price. It's not an obligation to the public good. So uh, it's kind of like the, a bit of like the fox guarding the hen house sort of scenario, I think, you know. But uh, it's it's really kind of and, – and this is happening now. You, you may not even realize it, but you go to a, um, a big box store, and let's say you require a membership there to, to get in to go shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you need a card or whatever. They, they know your name. They know your date of birth. They know your address. They know your postal code. They know your height, they know your weight, because you probably got to show your driver's license to get a membership. And uh, you start shopping, and over the period of weeks or months or years, they have a pretty good idea what you buy in that store. So what can they gather from that? What correlational data can they gather from that? Or what inferences can they draw from that? Well, they can pretty well guess what your income level is. You know, if you're not going in to buy a $25,000 piece of uh you know, I don't know, electronics or something like that, uh, or, you know, something on the high-end scale, they, they can pretty well pigeonhole you into uh, uh, what your annual income is. They look at your address, your postal code. They can guess what kind of neighborhood you live in. And all this is going into a big data machine. And they know a lot more about you than you think just by shopping, right? Of course, just go to your Google search bar. You get a couple letters typed in. They know what you want already. It's a predictive source. And so... I get it. And, you know, whether it be the fox guard in the hen house, which is absolutely what they're suggesting in part, there's also concurrent meetings happening in Sweden where they're talking about government interve- intervention, which is ultimately going to be required. And this is not about squashing free speech, and it's not about uh, putting the, uh, trying to pull in the reins on industry. But at some point, if Jeffrey Hinton or Sam Altman or someone from Microsoft or Google or DeepMind or Anthropo- uh, Anthropic, if they are warning us right now, maybe we should pay heed. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a bit of a uh, the canary in the coal mine sort of uh, analogy. I think you know we got to be we, we got to be uh, on guard for what's, what potentially lies ahead. I read a story in the New York Times the other day uh, about this issue uh, and regarding the legal field. And you and I talk about law all the time, you know, and different aspects about uh, law and, and, and uh, criminal justice and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there was a law firm in the United States that a lawyer at this firm used ChatGPT to uh, prepare a brief to file in one of the district courts or appellate courts down there. And this thing, this algorithm, spewed out all kinds of case law for the, for the, as part of the brief for this lawyer to present to a court, and it was all false. Yeah, a reporter at the Toronto Star did the same thing. His inputs were about things that he would have written about and phrases he may have used in stories of the past. It spit out a bunch of stuff that uh, of articles that didn't exist. So, yeah. 
you know, it's remarkable to me. It was not so long ago, the worry here was that university students were using uh, ChatGPT to cheat. And now look what we're talking about. So yeah. if the risks and the worries and the potential for harm to be created by artificial intelligence went from just months ago about cheating on your exam to things that Jeffrey Hinton are sa is saying, it's just wild. It absolutely. I can't wrap my mind around it. I'm the furthest thing from tech savvy. I can read the high-level stories. I can't get down into the weeds where the technical aspects are discussed. But when people talk about it the way they do talk about it in layman's terms, in easy speak, then I think before long we're all going to be made much more well aware of what's happening. But the hope is that it won't be because it's too late. And we're talking about news stories and headlines that are about here's what artificial intelligence did and here how it hurt. here's how it hurt you, here's how it hurt an individual, a business, a country, or a political party, whatever the case may be, because the more we learn about it, the more concerned I become anyway. Yeah, and I think the tipping point is going to be, you know, uh, you look at something like nuclear weapons, humans have control over those uh, as of right now, you know, we're at the top people in our national government, uh, and they can ultimately decide to use them or not use them. But if we get into a situation where these uh, artificial intelligence platforms take over and they become so smart and... You have the leader of a country deciding uh, we're not going to use nukes. And if one of these uh, platforms turns around and says, uh, you know, makes some kind of calculation and says, no, for optimum efficiency, we, there's a 75% chance if we strike first, uh, we know we're going to win this war. And therefore, I'm overriding the president of the United States or the prime minister of Great Britain. Now, you got a problem, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's going to be part of your everyday life. You're going to call for some support, whether it be for tech or otherwise, and now you're not going to possibly even be able to know if you're speaking with a real person or you're speaking with a machine. Yeah. And, you know, some of those deep fakes that have already been very problematic for individuals, businesses, and otherwise, they're also going to be further propagated because of this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I know this is really high level, and for the most part it's over my head, but I think we should all pay heed and our due diligence to wrap our mind around exactly where this might be leading us and what needs or could or should be done about it. Uh, Colin, final word to you before I take a break. You know, we need uh, some sort of regulatory process from the national and provincial and state governments uh, over this. Uh, we need input from, obviously, from academia and from, from private business, from Google and Microsoft and the other companies. But we can't get to the point that uh, these private companies are, are off to the side and, and regulating themselves without any oversight from, from government because when that happens, uh, the public the public good and the public interest is not served. It would be like uh, letting the restaurant industry uh, inspect its own kitchens, you know? And if, and if you let them do that over and over and over without any uh, oversight from, from government, uh, eventually they're going to cut corners because it's a business. You know, they want maximum profit uh, and at the least cost. So if you start cutting corners, uh, you're putting people at risk. So I think there has to be a government uh, oversight uh, on this uh, at all times. And uh, this is one of the cases where technology is rapidly outpacing the law and the legislative process. So governments are going to have to get up to speed on this. And uh, we may, we may, need, we may need, even need to uh, create new laws. Quite possibly. I, I don't know where this goes, but, I mean, the whole world about the relationship between legislative bodies and technological advancement has been an issue for, I'm going to say, decades. Uh, but now even that, that water on those particular beans has changed to, you know, not just understanding 
social media and who's the arbiter of truth and all those things is something that is learning quicker than I could ever learn, which yeah. is not saying a lot, but the implications. And again, I am the furthest thing from in the business of trying to stoke fear for the sake of, you know, for some people it's about clicks and the, when you sensationalize something, it brings in ears or listeners or viewers, what have you. I have no interest there. We are actually talking about warnings being proposed by the actual industry itself, the creators of this technology. Just want to reiterate that because I'm, uh, I'm not in the business of fear. I appreciate the time, Colin. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burjo Lapointe. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. Thank you. How about you? I'm just literally in a car heading down to the uh, the conference right now down at the convention center. It's uh, day two. Before we get into the sold-out conference, and it's just remarkable that even when one of the executives at ExxonMobil stands up to talk about the oil business, before long talking about windmill lubricants, it really set the stage for a very hydrogen wind-focused day yesterday. So we'll get to that. But right off the bat, we know that the Atlantic premiers have asked the federal government to postpone the implementation of the clean fuel regulations, which will indeed come with a cost come the 1st of July. What's the status of that plea? Well, right now, uh, basically it's it's, I guess still in that pattern right now where the four Atlantic premiers, including Premier Fury, obviously have met with Minister Stephen Gabot. They put forward that we have significant concerns. And obviously we've been hearing from people and they did it in the right way. They're doing it together because this has an effect on the Atlantic region as a whole. It's not just any one province. Uh, as it stands, what, what I think is happening is that I think the feds have taken it away and they have committed to ensuring further examination of the issue especially as it relates to you know fuel uh, providers such as Irving they so they I think they need to do a little more homework and we've basically got a month before implementation so we still have some time uh, left you know we've expressed our concern that it's going to have a detrimental effect on fuel pricing uh, nobody's against the, the, the whole premise of you know cleaner fuel and, and emission reduction don't get me wrong but our big thing is that we cannot afford a further detrimental impact we're talking about 17 cents is the argument being made that atlantic canada is different because we have very little refining capacity and consequently the market is dominated by particularly one entity so if their margins have moved from 10 cents a liter in 2019 and now it's about 50 cents a liter their cost increase will be small and incremental so are we asking for the attention to be given to the refining sector to absorb more of this cost because for me this is a lot a lot like sugar tax i know it's not a direct analogy but in the uk they're making the manufacturers reduce sugar content uh, versus what we're doing here making me make choices and i'm paying the tax for any protection of my health or however people want to couch it so is that the argument that the refinery should absorb uh, the bulk of the load here versus the consumer We've been putting forward a whole number of concerns to them about the impact on Atlantic Canada, including the one you name when we talk about the, the, you know, the fact that we do not have a refinery within Newfoundland and Labrador, and we're forced to do you know, importation uh, and, and the impact it's going to have on you know, distribution and everything. And I mean, there, there's, like I say, there's no stone that has been left uncovered when it comes to the concerns that we've outlined. Uh, you know, what is the impact going to be on Marine Atlantic? For example, when we talk about the importation uh, of goods into this province, we've put everything out there. We continue to work with them. And again, I've heard the numbers. I mean, as up as high as, like you say, 17, I think there's some dispute over that. But what we're putting to them is 
this is your decision, you better nail it down and figure out what it is you're actually doing here rather than hoping for the best. And we want a, a, a more thorough examination of what the actual impact will be on Atlantic Canada. Let's move out of the conference. So you're talking about uh, what companies will be moving on to the second round. I'm curious as to what is evaluated. There, I know you talked about yesterday when you mentioned that we're dealing with legal issues, environmental issues, talk about crown lands and different proponents, the advocacy groups. So what puts a company over the top? Is it access to capital or how, what's the measure? So the, the thing is there's two phases. The first phase is very much, uh, we're, we're simply talking feasibility. I mean, when you've got 19 different proponents coming here, it's, it's a combination of all those things. And in some cases, it's, can this literally be done? Uh, before you move to the second stage where, you know, you get into uh, you know, the different criteria that we have in the grading when we talk about diversity plans, we talk about, you know, what are your requirements. But in some cases, in, in this initial stage, and again, it's it has been an extremely comprehensive process. One, uh, when you've got, you know, 21,000 pages of information in front of you and then back and forth, again, trying to work with proponents to figure out what is it they're actually saying here. This is about determining, I think, uh, the, the real from the theoretical. As we move forward, then you'll get more into, okay, so this is how you propose to do it. How do you hit each of these eight different target areas? Like, what is your, you know, your work plan? What, are, what is your timeline? Uh, what is your, you know, return going to be? What does your workforce look like? Where is it you're trying to do? And in some cases, there will be, uh, in some cases, you have perhaps one proponent for one piece of land. In other cases, you'll have multiple pieces our proponents looking for the same piece, then you'll get into you know, obviously going to be a competition there. So hopefully we'll move past that first phase in the next couple of weeks. We're certainly trying hard, but it's not solely within our lap. We're dealing with, as, as you said and I said, a whole range of different groups and governments uh, and departments. Uh, hopefully after we get that, then we'll get into the more thorough analysis of what does it actually mean? Uh, what can we see? What do we expect to benefit from and get from this? And I'm not going to ask you to prejudge, but I suppose there's a difference between pattern energy and the fact that they don't need crown land and maybe be Brookfield Renewable and they're backstopped by Brookfield Asset Management, which is, of course, a behemoth when we talk about uh, financing. Uh, help us understand, if possible, some of the comments coming from uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro CEO Jennifer Williams. The need to double output by 2032 based on what? So basically, I, one of the things that when you talk about uh, just the there are certain proponents, and, and again, I'm not going to say anything one way or the other about any proponent. If there's anything I've learned about this is that there's a sensitivity to the words that you say, and I don't want to have any effect on this process. But uh, Jennifer has said not just when it comes to this process but everything, there will be an increase in demand. People are increasingly, whether you have diesel industries trying to move off that, or in this case, whether you have proponents that are going to require grid access for power for these projects, Right now, we are facing a squeeze on what we have here. We've always got we've got huge demand. Even just in Labrador alone, there is huge demand required, and not just for if you're talking about Bitcoin, not just if you're talking about wind and hydrogen. We have mining companies that would love to increase their access uh, to green electricity, you know, electricity versus using diesel, because they want to get into a different product and improve their own emissions. Uh, reduction plans and, and again what their stakeholders are asking so the, the straight up answer is that we we're going to need more let alone the possibilities of what do other jurisdictions require 
from us. I mean, you have Quebec up there having the exact same conversations on, you know, the need to possibly build uh, more plants versus what can we accomplish here. So it's it's not just a Newfoundland and Labrador conversation. There's about what are we shipping outside and then beyond our borders. So the good news is that it's it's positive conversations. We it's not like we're trying to come up with a solution for which there is no answer. We have multiple answers. It's which one's the best, the timeliest, the most cost effective. Speaking of cost, I mean, we're all still waiting for whatever rate mitigation means and looks like to be formally finalized, which we're told is simply a matter of dotting I's and crossing T's, apparently. But then Ms. Williams also said that in regards to domestic demand, the potential to use hydrogen. But at this point, we're talking about green hydrogen. At least that's what I know about the 19 proposals. If they're talking hydrogen at all, it would be green. But when compared to gray and blue, Green hydrogen could be 32% to 300% more costly to produce and consequently more costly to the consumer. So we talked about, you know, for instance, uh, World Energy GH2 potentially selling uh, excess power from their turbines back to the grid. Never have we been talking about buying green hydrogen, which is way more expensive than anything else we talked here. Is that actually part of any of these proposals? Is that part of Hydro's future here, to buy green hydrogen? Not at this stage. I think one of the, and there's a multiple different angles I can go at what you just said. Uh, number one, the biggest driver of all this is that green energy of any kind is and has been more expensive than traditional uh, carbon emitting energy. That's why that's why we are still in some cases cases we are, we are still using diesel. That's why other places are still using coal because the creation of green energy in and of itself is more cost prohibitive. And as the costs come down, it, it, you get more able to to use it. But then you also throw in the reliability factors here. Can we? You know, is it totally reliable? The other part of this is: look, right now we are solely everything right now is based on export. This none of this first round is based on importation or using within our system. We do not have hydrogen powered vehicles. We do not have a grid that can use hydrogen now. We are not we. Uh, Hydro is doing studies on wind integration. Uh, how how can we input, input wind into our current grid, and what are the needs there? But that's going to take still going to take a little bit of time. Nor is it a part of this equation. Um, so again, we we just don't have the need to do hydrogen as it stands uh, internally. That conversation's coming. Don't get me wrong. I've seen literally when I'm in Rotterdam looking at hydrogen-powered Ford Rangers. That's coming, but it's not here yet. It's not a part of this conversation, per se. Yeah, and some of the uh, articles I've read about people saying, you know, temper your expectations for what hydrogen means in this country. They talk about the fact that the hydrogen projects in play now even outpace the aviation industry regarding uh, carbon emissions. But, of course, that just talks about the fact that most of those hydrogen projects are fueled by fossil fuels, not by wind. So, you know, that article kind of missed uh, some of it. The big thing too about hydrogen that, uh, and again, there's this is a conversation in and of itself that, like again, you know, there's a huge learning curve to this even for myself. But you know, when we're in Rotterdam, we're talking about green hydrogen because it is, you know, we're not using fossil fuels to power it. Whereas, say, New Brunswick is talking about pink hydrogen, where they're literally using nuclear to power it. Then you talk about brown and gray. None of that sounds good because the fact is they're using. Not, they're using carbon-based sources in many cases to do this or, or non, non-renewables. Uh, so the good news here is that we are only having a conversation on green hydrogen. We're not having those conversations. But you know, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts to this, and there is a recognition that you know, even the other side of this is when you talk about export, we had to figure out offtake agreements. And what that means is, okay, we produce the hydrogen, we convert it to ammonia, 
what is the cost that Europe is going to pay to get that uh, versus what is the cost to actually produce that? And usually there's a gap there, so we have to figure out a way to make this, you know, to, to close that gap. How do you do that? Then the other side of this, again, I've been talking about wind for years. People say, why don't we have wind here, there, and everywhere? Because you've got you to pay more for it. And right now, that's that's the balance we have to achieve versus you know affordability versus and reliability versus cost. And the the simple fact is that renewables are still more expensive than our traditional fuels. Yeah, solar's coming back to earth a little bit. It's going to be cheaper this year than last year. Um, on that front, who's we? Because when we talk about the gap between production and end uh, end price for the consumer, you know that's long been I thought John Risley's problem, not mine. Absolutely. So when I say we, I'm just using the royal we here. I'm talking about everybody. Uh, but the question has been in multiple other jurisdictions, and not so much for hydrogen, but when they talk about wind, it has been publicly subsidized. Now, we have not had a single conversation here on the public subsidization of this power, especially as we talk about uh, exporting it to other markets. That wouldn't seem to make much sense. But there is a reality. What is the cost that the market is willing to pay versus what is the cost of us doing it here? Where we have a say in that is our regular, our fiscal regime there. So part of this is, look, we put forward something uh, that we think makes sense on a number of fronts in terms of what does it cost to uh, set up on our crown land, what is the water usage, et cetera, electricity usage. Uh, but we have, we have had to keep in mind, this is the thing I've been making clear to everybody, if you price yourself out of it, nobody's going to come here and set this up because it's simply too expensive to produce and you'll be taking a loss on every ton that you ship to Europe. These, so these are conversations where we have to listen to people to try to figure out what is that sweet spot where it's affordable to make, we're getting a return on it, uh, and it's going to be used by you know the, the consumer, which right now is primarily in Europe. Okay, and uh, I understand that uh, that answer. Very quickly, are any of the proposals regarding offshore, because yesterday it was tabled no. in the House of Commons that there's going to be updates to the accords governing uh, the CNL, what used to be the CNLOPB and the regulator in Nova Scotia. So this kind of came out of nowhere for me. So has anyone approached our provincial government about offshore wind? Okay, so answer one, have people approached us? Absolutely. For some time, people have been coming us to offshore wind because, again, we have the best resource. There's no doubt about it. Number two, offshore is not a part of this current proposal. This is all land-based and primarily because we control the jurisdiction and it is more economically feasible so that we haven't had to deal with federal regulatory side. Same, same as what we had to do with our offshore oil. What this does today is this is going to announce accord changes on the federal front, which is then we will have to obviously, as this goes through, make provincial changes to our accord acts. The whole purpose being that we are finally going to be able to have joint management of offshore. And the big thing there is figuring out what coastal waters and you know jaws of the land, bays, waters are going to be within our jurisdiction. But I can tell you there's a tremendous amount of interest here. Uh, this is a good news announcement. There's still work to be done, but believe me, there are a lot of companies not interested in onshore that have been watching for the offshore opportunity. Yeah, and hopefully they can find a market for their power, which of course they can, northeast United States be uh, particular. Nova Scotia's going uh, hell-bent for leather on this one, talking about 5 gigawatts offshore by 2030, which is pretty aggressive target being set by that province. Uh, very quickly, hopefully there's a yes-no here. There's been folks, especially in the Port of Port Peninsula, saying we need to involve the federal government, the Federal Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, which is evaluating exactly zero projects at this time. They want to bring in that group to be part of the environmental assessment. Is that going to happen? Yes or no? 
I, I, I can't say yes or no on that one because I don't know. I don't make that decision. Do I think it's necessary? No. But I would. I do not make that decision on whether the feds will be involved in there. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Andrew Parsons. He's, of course, the Minister of Industry, Energy, Technology. Let's take a break. When we come back, time for you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Dennis, you're on the air. How's it going, buddy? Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing okay. How about you? I want to talk about uh, how the medications, um, people with disabilities that come out of prisons or out of prisons a long time ago or not in prison, about the... the pills that they get out. Some clinics do not have the qualifications to given certain narcotics to to part to their patients or on having a hard time getting that from uh, clinics around the city because they're not qualified or they don't have that. You know, I want to know what. Uh, answer is to get these because I'm having a hard time and other people are too. You're having a hard time getting what in particular, Dennis? I'm sorry? Yeah, narcotics brought from the doctor. Like like if you go to a clinic and you're brought these medications and you can't get them because these clinics can't give them to you. Okay. These narcotics for disabilities that we do need. Like uh, your fetal alcohol syndrome or schizophrenic or sleepers, like sleep medications. These clinics are not giving them, and we don't have family doctors, and we're all suffering in Newfoundland because of this. So you're having a hard time getting a doctor to prescribe a narcotic to you? Yes, that it was our. I lost my doctor. About three or four months ago, because he he's up in age and he's uh, uh, is uh, canceling his patients because it's overload. And I'm not going to say his name or nothing like that. Said he used to prescribe me these sleepers and the right medication for me to function on my disability. You know what I mean? And these uh, pills. These clinics you go to won't give them something and give you something besides that. And I don't agree with that, uh, Patty. Well, fair enough, but I'm not sure what I can say about a doctor's decision as to whether or not to prescribe one drug or another, narcotic or otherwise. I'm not. I know that you can't need certain medications. You, it's laws behind them. What what I'm saying, it should be a better approach on family doctors that, you know, because there's a lot of people that are going through difficulty and suffering, and you know, you know, I'm having a hard time getting these sleepers and the right medications for me to function. So because of my my disability and these clinics around don't prescribe these pills. Or these narcotic pills that we need to uh, go on with our days. E- even about the prisoners that 
or coming out needs these medications or on it before they went in. And when it comes out, if they don't have a family doctor or someone that is, you know, on these pills for a while, can't get these. Yeah, there's, I think, a larger conversation about when people are incarcerated, taking off drugs that have been prescribed by a doctor. That's always been a really curious one, especially when we talk about drugs associated with mental health. That's a safety issue, uh, I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because this guy really needs these. He's, you know what I mean? It's, It's not the crime, it's the medication. You can't, certain medications, if you're on them for a while, and these clinics around are because of this family doctor problem, and it's trying to be sorted out. Who, who's, you know, is he going to seriously hurt somebody to go back into jail? Or, you know, or is he going to go through challenges? Including myself here. I'm, I'm trying to get a family doctor, and it's hard. Like, this got to be a scuss for not just people with disabilities. I'm talking about people that need doctors. Because this, this new plan is going downhill, man. It's not getting up and running. Yeah. It's going downhill slowly. Access to a doctor has been a problem we talk about literally yeah, all the time. We, child needs a family doctor. Adults need a family doctor. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, hopefully you get the help you need. So obviously what the prescribing doesn't seem to be working for you, if I understand your concerns here this morning. But no, you, I, I you, have a hard time getting them. Okay, understood. Uh, Dennis, hopefully you get the help you need. I'm late for the break, but you, good luck. Keep us in the loop. If, if you can mention something about that, that would be a great point. I'll see if I can okay. do it. Okay. Okay, bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Get back on track here. When we come back, Rick wants to talk about promises made in the last provincial budget. What promises? We'll all find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Rick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, sir. How about you? Not too bad. Good. Uh, There's a question I'd like to uh, ask you uh, with regards to the provincial budget that was brought down back in March. Yep. Uh, uh, because there seems to be some confusion, like people are asking me this question, the same thing. But anyways, what I would like to do is I would like to put the question, uh, put forth the question, and then I'll give you the answer that I'm getting online. And then I'd like to get your insight after, if we could do that. Let's go. Okay. Uh, I asked Google yesterday, and, and uh, I know that you followed up on the uh, 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 the provincial budget, and you analyzed it because I heard you on VOCM radio. So the question is, was there a 5% increase for low-income people and seniors announced in the 2023 <clears throat> budget uh, in our province? And now the answer that I got from Google was uh, the increase, it didn't say yes or no, but it said the increase will benefit more than 160,000 families and individuals, yeah. increasing the senior benefits to $67.1 million, uh, which represents a 5% increase. And then it goes on to say this benefit helps almost 50,000 seniors age 65 or older. And it goes on to say $6.1 million to support the 5% increase in the income support basic rate. Now, having said that, uh, I'm hearing also uh, that the, the, uh, the budget has been passed through the legislature and that all liberal, liberal members uh, in favor of the budget uh, uh, and and uh, yes, all, all liberal members voted in favor of, of it. 
and as did uh, independent members Paul Dane, Eddie Joyce, and all members of the PCs and NDP voted against the document. So, if you could answer that question for me, because there seems to be some confusion. Did you hear, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you hear uh, if there was an announcement made in that budget that was brought down of a 5% increase? Okay, here's what I know. Now, of course, those who voted against it, that's the machination of politics inside the House of Assembly, not that they're opposed to one policy or program or another. Here's what I know. The budget had very little in the way of new announcements. The announcement you're talking about ages all the way back to last June. And what it is, is that there's going to be 10% increases in quarterly payments if you currently qualify for a senior's benefit or the income supplement. The numbers used about 162,000 and 50,000. Those are the numbers I remember as well. So... Again, if I remember correctly, this is a 10% increase quarterly, and it will come to pass on the 5th of July this year. Those increases will start on the 5th of July. Okay. So that not, so you're saying something I, 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 I kind of missed you there. You said something about last June that was, an, that was announced? That was the initial announcement about an increase to seniors' benefits and income supplement is as old as last June. Okay. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Well understood, sir. Yeah, and it was a 10% increase. That happened on the 5th of July. I don't know if there was a further increase in this budget, simply to say about it will indeed be refunded so that the 10% will remain in play this year. Okay, okay. Well understood, sir. Thank you for your insight and your answer. No problem. Hopefully that clears it up. Have yourself a good day, and I just want to say a speedy recovery to that accident victim, sir. Oh, boy, me too. Uh, thank you for your time, Rick. Thank you, sir. You have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and again, so when the mention in this year's budget about income supplement and seniors' benefit, I think it was the same parameters for how who qualifies and that the 10% will, con- will continue, which I think it is about if you receive a seniors' benefit, you get about $1,400-ish per year for the income supplement that adds up to about i think it's a thousand dollars for a family of four is that 10 percent bump so anyway let's go to line number two good morning pat you're on the air uh, yes patty i heard you talking to uh mr andrew parsons there uh wasn't aware that you were so informed on the different uh stuff about hydrogen you know the efficiency the cost of it uh we have green hydrogen which we're proposing uh you have your pink hydrogen which is generating it from uh nuclear energy you have your uh brown and your black you also have your blue blue is right now the most common and what blue basically is is uh smr steam methane so i'm i'm surprised that you know all of this stuff uh we, we are proposing and he said that uh, there's 19 or something proposals that are moving forward has anything we've never heard nothing yet has it been debated in the house is there any fee structure of what we get out of this for leasing the land what we get per uh, kilogram of hydrogen generated has there any been any discussion on what Newfoundland and how we benefit from this uh, yes some just to clarify it's not that there's 19 moving forward there's actually 19 proposals in front of government at this moment in time the announcement on who's exactly. going to move to the... Nineteen in front. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm aware of that. Yeah, so they're saying that there's going to be an announcement soon about 
what companies, what proposals will move forward to the second round of evaluations, which will happen sometime maybe the end of the next month or sometime in July. So what was the other question? I'm, I'm sorry. It was about what's in it for us stuff. The, what do we? What uh, is there any talk in any debate in the House? Because there's debate saying like there's so much stuff that we could be, and we and the government is basically trying to be secretive because they reduced the House days constantly. We're the lowest we've ever been in a long time. But has, has there been any debate at all as to what the fee, the land lease fee, fee for leasing Crown land would be, the cost for using water resources? Unless we're talking about using uh, wastewater, which is possible. No, uh, we're, we're actually using a, an, an industrial uh, reservoir that was in place as utilized by Abitibi. So the water is not coming from any new source that wasn't already had an industrial application. So that's, that's that, that part. Thanks for that info, Patty. Appreciate it. No problem. And here's what we do know. Is the Crown Land Lease Fee, there's a yearly charge, I think it's 3.5% of whatever the evaluated market value will be, and that will be adjusted annually. The the crown, let me see if I get this right. There's also an annual charge of 7% of market value. How they both interact, I don't know. When it comes to a wind tax, there is one. There's an annual charge, and the, the turbine has to be active, and there's an annual charge of, I think it's $4,000 per megawatt. There's also water royalties, which are, I think, really debatable about how we arrived at those things. There's an annual exactly. charge. that's what I'm mainly concerned about, Patty, is yeah. water royalties. It's 500 bucks per thousand cubic meters 500 bucks per 1,000 cubic meters of water okay thanks patty yeah no problem the issue with the water is that those water royalties do not kick in until the company the proponent covers recovers their cost which brings upon some pretty interesting conversations about how that's evaluated you bet it does patty you bet it does oh absolutely there's i think there's a distinct worry there so here's the picture that they tried that's, to paint and that's my I'm, I'm on that side of the side where you're going that is my concern so yeah. you understand where i'm going patty i think so and i'm pretty sure i gave you those numbers pretty accurately because i tried to absorb them when they were first introduced in the house here's the issue that they paint or the picture that they paint they have used the hypothetical of a 1000 megawatt project if i remember the numbers they say over the course of 30 years there will be a return of three and three point either two or three point five billion dollars to the province now that includes things like construction jobs and uh, full operation jobs, uh, the crown land lease fee, water royalties, wind turbine tax. So they paint a pretty rosy picture on that front, but it's the cost recovery for, by the proponent before royalties kick in that I think gives me, th puts the biggest questions in my mind. It puts the biggest questions in my mind too, Patty, because this is, I don't know, I mean, this is all new. So, especially generating it from from uh, water versus using what's not what commonly now to create hydrogen blue energy, SMB, SMR rather. Uh, so this is no what what jobs? I mean, we know in the oil industry, people have worked here offshore. The people have worked in the North Sea from Newfoundland. The people, especially the people who worked in Alberta, that is one of the most uh, highly uh, labor-intensive processes of getting oil out of the ground anywhere in the world. 
it's very labor intensive, and that labor intensive flows down to to companies that are are supplying uh, like drill pipes for the offshore companies in Alberta, providing scuff support for the different rig, rigs and that. It's very labor intensive and flows down through the economy to very well. So it's lots created out of it. We don't. I don't know what you know how labor inducive how how much jobs directly and indirectly are created from these companies. That's something I'd love to, love to know too. Or hear from Mr. Parson. Yeah, full time. Well, I, I suppose it's based on the scale of the project, right? When we talk about construction jobs, full time operations jobs. Not huge. Yes, I mean, operations job. Yeah, not huge. Uh, and I think that probably varies, too, if you have versus 164 wind turbines and an ammonia plant versus some of the differences maybe be at the Port of Argentia and otherwise. And just for clarity, when we talk about the different forms of hydrogen, the colors associated with it is simply based on how it's created. So for green, right. it's wind. For blue, natural gas, steam methane capture that you rightfully point steam to. Methane. Uh, yeah, brown is about coal uh, firing the, that particular uh, process. So the colors are simply about how it's generated. No more, no less. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but those are the numbers in the royalty for the, world. For the, un, un, for the uninformed. Uh, I'll leave you with one thing too, Patty. The, it's like nobody has discussed, and it's just for the general public information out there. So what are we? Why do people want this? What What is the benefit of coming here and doing this? First of all, it's because we have the wind to create the hydrogen. But why do they want the hydrogen? I mean... In terms of the, the in terms of the cost and everything, this versus a battery BEV, a battery electronic vehicle versus a fuel cell vehicle, it's it's highly inefficient, and actually doing more harm to the environment, creating it than benefit for a fuel cell for a passenger vehicle. But hydrogen has – it's a high density. So if you were to be able to create this environmentally friendly and produce, put this for use in uh, trains, in use in diesel, in marine diesel, and replace that, there is a, there is a market there. If it can be done done environmentally friendly and uh, zero emission. Well, it is much more environmentally friendly than a lot of other fuels that are currently being used. There's nothing perfectly green. It's simply not true, and we always have to be careful not to. Uh, no, it's not true. Yeah. Anyway, I'll give you the final word before they send me off to the break here, Pat. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for those numbers. That's what I was wondering is what they were using for a water, so water source for environmental purposes. So thanks for that. And, uh, and also uh, getting, as you mentioned, what the different fees would be, be out of this. As for the other stuff, you know, long-range jobs, all of that, we don't, we don't, I don't think anyone really has the numbers on the, on that, but yes, that that is the that is the concerns that need to be looked at right now is uh, what benefit we're getting out out of this versus you know is this just supporting someone uh, your friends like Mr. Ridgely and them 
or are we actually benefiting of this? Because what is one or two billion dollars over 30 years? Nothing. Nothing. There are companies from wind energy alone in the world right now that I know in two or three years selling their wind energy are paying for the building of hospitals in the country, paying for the building of schools in the country. They are making good money out of this. Yeah, but now I think... And goes to generation of wind energy. Yeah, but there's a difference between simply wind energy versus using wind to create hydrogen, in this case the green variety. So, you know, I don't think it's a really super idea for government to have any direct cash on the barrel head or formal involvement beyond the way we currently are because the green hydrogen is expensive. If we see advancements and cost comes down to worth, whether it be with solar or straight up wind for domestic use, or or advancements in battery storage, what have you. So they're the ones taking the big risk here. And I don't think it can simply be about it's just John Risley is a friend of Premier Fury because there's 19 proposals. Not all of them have been including fishing trips and private jet trips and all those types of things. So will his project be one of the ones move on to the second round? I would suggest very, very likely. And why that would be the case, I'll leave that up to people's personal opinion. And I mean, the creation of the green hydrogen, there is no emissions upon creation. The problem is if we're talking about over all emissions is getting it with the blend with ammonia to market. So it's a long way from Stephenville to Germany. So emissions have to be including uh, at the site and downstream. And downstream means transporting the product all the way to Germany. So there you go. I've got to get to the break, but I appreciate your time this morning. Exactly. Thanks, uh, thanks, Patty. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. So there's a lot of numbers floating around in my head. It was back in June last year. Talk about a 10% increase in the income supplement and seniors benefit. This information comes from independent member Paul Lane, and I appreciate the info. So there is going to be a 5% increase that was in this budget, an additional 5% increase. And the math there was 77.5 million in the income supplement envelope, 67.1 million in the seniors benefit. So an additional 5% increase. That's the information the caller was looking for, and we're glad we could provide it accurately at this point. Let's Take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. All right, let's go. Line number five. Gabe, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? Oh, I'm all right, I suppose. I had a bit of a bad connection earlier, but I'm glad I was able to get on this morning. I'd like to uh, take the opportunity to uh, promote a couple of wrestling shows coming up, if that's all right. Let's go. All right. So in Newfoundland, there's currently uh, two promotions, those being New Evolution Wrestling and Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And NEW I'll get to momentarily. But uh, this Saturday, there will be a third promotion starting up called uh, Inner City Wrestling. Um, The... Opening show uh, called ICW Emergence. It's going to be taking place in Bonavista, Bonavista Cabot Stadium. Uh, and we have some pretty stellar matches uh, for that, that show on Saturday, um, where we have some guys from Nova Scotia that's going to be making their debuts. Guys like uh, Ryan Cleary, uh, Joey White, Kobe uh, Christ, uh, excellent talents from Nova Scotia that's going to be joining us in Newfoundland. Um, We're going to have uh, Bonavista Native by the name of uh, Axel Mason. He's going to be defending his hometown of Bonavista against uh, 
a guy named uh, Tara Z says going to be an excellent match. And it all leads up to uh, main event for the ICW Championship. Uh, two of those participants uh, in that match have already been announced uh, on ICW Facebook page. Uh, those being Bulldog Brandon Hines and Crybaby Kobe Christ. Uh, the winner of another match that's happening that night between uh, Jeremiah Javen and a guy named Benoit Gravel. Uh, the winner of that match will join that main event. It's going to be a triple threat for the ICW title. Uh, we're hoping to get lots there. Um, I believe most of the tickets are sold out, actually, from what I understand. Um, you might still be able to get a couple of uh, standard tickets. Um, you can get those at the Bonavista Town Hall, Western Petroleum in Catalina, or at uh, Ticket Scene if you want to do like an online purchase. You can do it at TicketScene.ca. Cool. Give us the, the dates and times one more time before we take another caller. Uh, sure. Uh, the dates are June the 3rd for the ICW Emergence Show. Um, uh, I mentioned NEW. They have their seven-year anniversary show happening June 4th and 5th. That's going to be at the CLB Armory in St. John's. And I, if I have the time here, there is one other little thing I'd like to mention, if that's all right. Very quickly. Yep. Um, this is for anybody who wants to brush up on skills or any new people. Uh, the afternoon of June 3rd to Saturday, Kobe Christ, he's actually going to be taking part in a, or teaching a public uh, training seminar, if anybody wants to attend that. It takes place at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You do have to pay $20 for it, but you get to be taught by one of the best, for anybody who has a dream to be a wrestler. Better to learn from one of the best than to learn in the backyard from one of the worst. Uh, Appreciate the time, Gabe. Good luck with him. Not a problem. Thank you. All the best. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. All right. uh, Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the manager with Bridges to Hope. That's our friend Jody Williams. Good morning, Jody. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Top shelf, man. How are you doing? Good, buddy. Good. What's going on? I'm just calling now to um, basically announce that we're having a... In conjunction with uh, Vera Finn's uh, charity, Vera Cares, we're having a uh, drive-in bingo tomorrow night at Jack Byrne Arena at 7 o'clock. Um, so we're hoping to uh, get a good crowd out. This is kind of our first fundraiser now in this time of year, and uh, we've been buying more food than ever. We're already a couple of months uh, kind of past our food budget at this point. Uh, and it's their, their their first time doing an event since COVID, so uh, we're really looking forward to it. And it should be a nice dry night because sometimes those outdoor events really do get driven by weather. So a bit of rain today, but it looks pretty clear tomorrow. So yeah. hopefully that plays a role. Well, I think you're in the car, so I don't know if it's relevant to the yeah. thing. My experience <laughs> with it, though, it really did play a role because with the Eating Disorders Foundation, which I support yeah. and try to help all the time, it mm-hmm. did have an impact, remarkably oh, so. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, even though you are absolutely 100% right in the car, unless you're in the convertible with the top down, it's really not a worry. But yeah, yeah. so hopefully this works out. Just a, a general question for you, Jody. Yeah, sure. So now that we've seen that because the church was sold and St. Vincent de Paul out of Corpus Christi has gone by the wayside, have you seen an immediate uptick in the requirement for your services? Because they were serving about 200 people, apparently. Yeah, we definitely uh, 
have inherited uh, some of their clients, um, and we probably will expect more. Again, I don't. I I, I think they're just the first food bank that might uh, that has kind of closed, or you know, hopefully they will find another location. Uh, But certainly, I expect at least another one or two to close. Uh, And by default, uh, one of our uh, parameters certainly is we serve anyone and everyone that comes. So uh, some of the other food banks either have a geographical uh, thing or you know some other way of maintaining. some kind of a window, I guess, on or to keep that contained, but we don't do that. So we, we by, by default, we always kind of take on these extra clients. Just explain the ins and outs of trying to satisfy whoever walks in the door. And I know you guys are unique in that there's no geographical concentration that you adhere mm-hmm. to or what have you. Sure. So how do you fill up the cupboards? I mean, for the longest while, it was relying on the generosity of others. And you could were at one point able to stretch a dollar way further than I could. Yeah, yeah. You've suffered yeah. just like I've suffered in the ability to stretch a buck. So how exactly do you fill up the cupboards? What goes on through the course of the year? Uh, well, uh, well, like this year now, luckily, let's say we had a concert in March and we're having this bingo event tomorrow night because, uh, basically we've gotten so busy in the past year. Um, like, you know, we had a pretty good stream of online donors and some corporate support, but, um, that kind of, uh, I, I guess we kind of tapped that out and now, this year we were expecting to go into a deficit um, of about 80 grand with the food. So one of the things that I have done, though, uh, and I have a, actually a campaign going on right now. Today's the last day. Make it monthly. Last year when I was on uh, TV a lot and I was kind of, I kept saying, uh, you know, that doing. Uh-oh. Well, that's not working. Uh, Jody, let's try again. We couldn't hear you there through the feedback. Inner circle, uh, kind of tapping into this uh, new world we live in of subscription services. But certainly it makes donations a lot more... um more convenient for the donor so basically you know people are committing to making a monthly donation uh we have people that donate as low as three dollars a month some up to four hundred dollars a month so everything in between students uh but what it does for me as executive director it gives me the ability to uh like you know like say normally our money would come between september and december or thanksgiving we would get 80 percent of our money so you get in the middle of the summer you know and you're doing your school bag programs and you're you're, you're handing out lots of fruits and vegetables uh you know you kind of start to worry like you know can we still maintain this but uh we have uh up to 120 monthly sustainers now uh which gives us more of a predictable income so that has been uh you know that's been a saving grace really the just um and I'm, and, you know, the, the idea then, of course, is I want to keep growing and growing, growing that, and to never stop growing it, right? Uh, basic, the idea is, you know, to get a little bit of help from a whole lot of people. No doubt. And speaking of growing, is there ever a conversation amongst food bank operators, whether it be in more rural parts of the province versus here in the city, about actually growing, like operating a community garden where you have not only financial input from individuals, but maybe some elbow grease to grow some product to, you know, complement what you're already bringing in the door? Yeah. No, there's a lot of conversations going on. I'm on a board. Um that's kind of looking at, you know, the overall food security problem we have. Uh, uh, and, of course, p- 
part of that would be to increase food is obviously to grow food. So that is something we're looking at. Uh, and we're also getting ready here now to um, kind of make our our own land a little bit secure. And then conceivably, we will be adding in our own uh, beds there and adding in some fruits and vegetables. Um, so, yeah, we're, we are looking at that. Uh, and uh, Like here, like a little scale, uh, mostly... You know, obviously, what we will grow here wouldn't even put a dent in what we give out. But, um, you know, there's value in that and bringing in uh, people that can volunteer to help grow it. But we're looking at, uh, looking at uh, like, farming, and we're looking on a way bigger scale here, uh, on a different level as as a bigger conversation, I guess, that a bunch of us are having. When you want to have some of that bigger conversation here on the show, you're always welcome, and good luck with bingo. So what yeah. time is the first game of the Jack oh, yeah, Burn sure. Arena? Yeah, so uh, it's 5.30, the doors are open. Uh, starts at 7, it's cash only. Ziggy Peel Goods will be there. Uh, people are more than welcome to bring their own snacks, of course. Uh, and uh, and if you, you can always uh, certainly also drop off a non-perishable food item. Jack Burn Arena. Appreciate this, Jody. Good luck with it. All right, buddy. Thank you again. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jody Williams, the Executive Director at Bridges to Hope. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Jeff's here to talk about these proposals regarding wind to hydrogen. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Jeff, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking the call. Happy to do it. I'd like to uh, just chime back in about the hydrogen projects. I think, uh, you know, we should look seriously at protecting our natural resources and, uh, Perhaps the government and the proponents should get together and, in my mind, set up a desalination plant for every hydrogen project and there solves your water issue as well as, you know, there's a byproduct of salt we can use on our roads and uh, create extra jobs as well. With additional cost, because if we're already talking about a pretty significant cost of production, period, even if we just use the fresh water that's, been, that's going to come, if we're talking about World Energy GH2, that industrial reservoir. So I get where you're going, but that also would increase the, the cost of an already expensive end product, wouldn't it? Oh, for sure, Patty. But, I mean, the end result is, you know, we're trying to get most of the world's trying to get the net zero in many ways and, and protect our natural resources going along the, the same route. So... At the end of it, if, if you've got to spend some money to protect that, then that's the way to go rather than look at it down the road and say, oh, my God, it's a problem now, right? Yeah. So what sort of, if we're talking about, if it's straight up environmental related matters, what type of emissions, CO2, come from desalination? Do we know? Well, that's something that will have to be investigated, and it's going on all around the world, and I'm sure... You know, the, the rate at WEC technology is, is getting going forward. Uh, you know, by the time we get ready for something like that, I would say by then that'll be handled for sure. Okay. Uh, I, because I was curious, I just dragged it up as quick as I could, as quietly as I could. So if we're tar- talking about, so desalination is, of course, simply reverse osmosis, right, as people know. So what it says here, it's been calculated at 0.4 to 6.7 kilograms of CO2 per uh, cubic meter, which means that desalinating 1,000 cubic meters of seawater could potentially release as much as 6.7 tons of CO2. I did not know that. Yeah, it's a fair number right now to to start with, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I completely understand the points, and I mean, desalination for parts of the world is the only available solution to deal with their freshwater or brackish water shortage. So, yeah, would it be dovetailed 
into this particular project because if it adds emissions to a, a project that has a green tag and makes it cost more, I don't know if anybody who's a proponent with their own money that they raise in the private markets would be interested, but I understand where you're going with that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I just think they should have a look at it because, you know, by the time they do a cost plus analysis and then see, you know, what's out there to cut down the CO2, I mean, obviously, it could be doable if, if we need to try and save our water at some point. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be conversations around water rights and whether or not those water rights revert if and when they're not being used for the uh, established purpose of wind hydrogen. And so there's, I, I think there's a lot more to that particular conversation as well because we've made a pragmatic move in just simply leasing crown land. And if water is being used for this particular uh, defined use, fine. If that ever changes, then we go back to the drawing board regarding water and water rights as far as I'm concerned. But, Jeff, I appreciate the input. Anything else you want to say on this one this morning? No, I, that's that's fine. That's great. I just wanted to get that out there so maybe people start thinking about it, you know. Fair enough. Thanks for the call. Thanks for your time. Anytime, Jeff. All the best. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number two. Sarah, you're on the air. Hi, Sarah. On two. Is Sarah on too? I'll put her on hold, Dave, see if we can't figure out what Ms. Bunnell would like to talk about. There's one issue off the top. And, you know, I made reference to 24 Sussex. What's interesting is if you look back not that far, when there was some conversation happening about what we should do as a government about 24 Sussex, the Prime Minister's one-time residence, is they actually thought the right person to bring in as a neutral arbiter was David Johnston. Fascinating stuff. I'll save her for after the news. We're too tight here now, Dave. So now that they're talking about it again, and of course David Johnston is in the news widely about his role as the special rapporteur, which people can call a fake job, whatever they want. It's whether or not the government was going to follow through with the public inquiry. Mr. Johnson is not recommending it. But now also curiously, in his report, something that was not involved or not included in his preliminary report was what we're hearing now from former Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole. He's saying that the Chinese uh, had been coming after him with misinformation campaigns, what have you, which is, I think, different than straight-up direct financial support and volunteer support for some 11 candidates in the most recent federal election in 2021, seven liberals and four conservatives. But how... I mean, and this is not just Aaron O'Toole making this up and putting it out there. He was briefed by the intelligence agency. CISA's briefed Mr. O'Toole to tell him and to support what he thought was already ongoing. So apparently his political days are soon to be over, but he doesn't think that the Chinese intimidation and support or, add, pardon me, misinformation will stop upon his leaving politics. But it's not interesting. Johnson's report didn't mention it. But now that CISA's has actually briefed Mr. O'Toole, on his own personal circumstances. Now that's part of the news. So we're little tangles in that very small pool of Ottawa politics. Recommended as a neutral arbiter regarding 24 Sussex. Of course, the special rapporteur delivered a report that is not being well received in many, many corners of the country. I would imagine even inside the hearts and minds of some liberals because this is as much an issue of optics as it is pragmatism. There will indeed be plenty of confidential or classified documents that will never see the light of day, even inside a public inquiry. 
inquiry. But as you know, I have long said from day one, it's the only reasonable outcome here because people will not trust the process as it currently stands. Let's take a break. When we come back, we are indeed going to go up to Northern Penn, uh, Peninsula and talk about dialysis. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number two. Good morning, Vera. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning uh, to you. I'm, I'm calling about the, the premier at visit the dialysis unit in Sanatney on Thursday. Okay. Uh, sorry, um, on Monday. Um, well, I've been working on this dialysis thing for 15 months now for transportation or a dialysis unit in um Flowers Cove, and um, like it came into the office the other day. There was three, well, there was about ten or twelve of them. They walked through the hospital. Uh, it just came in and said the government crab was coming through. So as they were walking through, I noticed that the premier and the minister of health and our um, our MHA was there, and I've been trying to get the taxi in for months on top of months uh, about this dialysis thing, and they didn't even acknowledge the patients. Like you know, they just walked through as you know, and uh, like it was would have been a good chance at that time, like you know, for us to get together to have a meeting. Uh, I don't mean to have it in the dialysis unit, but they could have let me know that they were going to be in St. Anthony and I could have made time to meet with them or whatever, right? But there was no issue or no anything that they were, you know. So um, I was pretty upset by the idea. And I phoned Krista's office yesterday morning and I told them just how I felt. Um, so I'm wondering, Patty, is there any way or anywhere that you could tell me to go that I could get this? This has been ongoing for 15 months now. I've been working at this. Okay. Just so folks remember, and you and I have spoken before. So yeah. the issue is transportation and or cost coverage for transportation for folks traveling from your community, which is Flower Cove, Flowers Cove, to St. Anthony okay. for dialysis. So let me see if I can remember correctly. No, the thing that we're trying to get is a bus. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, like, you know, uh, those winter, I mean, the winter's creeping up again, another couple of months, winter being again, we'll still have to battle over the same roads. And, I mean, we'll have you out in uh, all kinds of weather. And for me, I have to drive back and forth to dialysis because I've got no family to drive me. I mean, all my family is in Alberta. Right, I understand. So, you know, would this propose? Okay, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I was going to ask. So, would your proposal mean that there would be a van or whatever type of vehicle five days a week for your community and other communities? Because it wouldn't just be folks of Flowers Cove that have to make that kind of travel. So, how do you? Put it, say, for instance, if I, I live in Roddington or Bider Arm or somewhere, and I also have to travel to St. Anthony, are you proposing that a bus be available for all dialysis residents on the Great Northern Peninsula? 
Well, yes, I'm fighting for all dialed patients. I mean, I'm not only fighting for myself, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, you know, everybody feels the same. I mean, there's women got to drive over this Irish road and whatever. And I mean, like, you know, you fight for everybody. You don't just fight for one person. Yeah, I, I was just trying to get a, a grip on the scope of your proposal and how many vans or buses would be required to offer a five days five days a week service for transportation, for dialysis. I, I don't know if you've done that bit of number crunching. I was just wondering how big that proposal would be. Well, I, like right now, we only have one uh, dialysis station from in the Radicton area, right? Okay. So, I mean, like, they they could make something, I guess, that could uh, be feasible for everybody. I can't see why not. I don't know. It's probably not going to be too far in the distant future that we have the minister responsible on again. I can... I can try to remember to put this on my list of questions because there's no end to the questions that we have for Minister Osborne. So I can do that much for you, Vera. Okay. Like, you know, I mean, like, it was, uh, I, I don't know, like, you know, I'm trying to get some, like, I mean, okay, in this area alone, there's 10 of us that travels back and forth to from mm-hmm. for dialysis. Mm-hmm. You know, that's quite a few people, right? That is. That had to drive this, this road. Uh, well, for myself, I drive three times a week. And so, so I have when I have you go, how, how long are you at the clinic? So what's the idea for a round trip? When you get up in the morning and you make your way for dialysis, give us an idea of when you leave the house, what time you get home. Uh, probably about a 12-hour day. Yeah. You know, time you get up and you go, and while well, you probably have lunch before, because we got to be there for going dialysis at one o'clock, and then time, uh, well, I'm out for three hours and forty-five minutes, so that's another uh, say four hours gone, and then you got another hour and a half to get back home. So, and, and then while you've got time, like probably sitting in the hospital waiting for it to get in and. Dialysis unit, like uh, they say, around one o'clock, but it might be one, one thirty before we get in. It's all according to how their their morning run goes, right? Yep, I understand. So that's what I'll do for you, Vera. I can put that on my list for questions for Minister Osborne. Okay, then, and I'm still going to be trying to get meetings with them or whatever. And if I do, I will let you know. I I would welcome the call. Thank you for this. Okay, thank you. You're Bye. welcome, Vera. Bye bye. Yeah, we can put that on the list for the minister. Let's keep going. Line number three, John, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you today, sir? Couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, pretty good. I'm calling about an issue that's uh, kind of silly, but uh, I'm going to pass it on in the event that uh, others might be uh, experiencing the same thing I am. Uh, I, I put in for a uh, apply for a beer application every year through the wildlife, which is administered through the Cornerbrook office. So uh, this year I go in, I do it online, of course, and I fill out the application, and it gets to the part where it costs my visa information, and I complete that and continue, and then a, a screen pops up and says, an error has occurred, transmission not complete, 
please try again. So next day I go in and I do the same process. This time it works. Everything fine. So a couple weeks or so after, I got two beer licenses in the mail. And as expected, when I got my visa bill, of course, I was charged twice, okay? Mm-hmm. So I said, well, that's not right. So I try to call those people to get one reversed, and of course you can't get them on the phone, so I sent them an email and um, explained my situation. And a lady called back yesterday from Cornerbrook. She told me she's a clerk there. And she said uh, they agree with what I'm saying is actual. And uh, she spoke to her manager, and her manager told her that uh, it was too late. I can't uh, be refunded my extra <laughs> bill there. What constitutes too late? Uh, that's that's my question. Now, I asked her. I, I didn't argue late. She's a nice lady, and I'm uh, polite to her and everything. I said, well, I'd like to speak to your manager, and she sent me an email saying that the manager will get in touch with me, which she hasn't yet. But I'm saying to her, uh, it's, it's a system uh, problem that you people have. It's not my problem. Uh, I, I got hit twice for for the bill, which I only I don't need two licenses. I only need one license. It's too late, and that's my question: is what constitutes too late? It's never too late for them to write me a check or send me a bank draft or send me cash or whatever they want to do. Uh, these are the questions I'm going to pose to her when, when she speaks. But it's so silly that I said I better call in the event other people had the same problem because I know one person that did at the same time. Some people might accept that and say, well, I paid twice and I'm not going to get any money back. Now, having said that, uh, if uh, they sent me a couple of checks I wasn't entitled to, would it be okay for me to say to them, I'm sorry, it's too late now, I can't send any money back? <laughs> no. The answer is quite easy on that one. It's a no. Are you no. even allowed to have two bear licenses? I, uh, well, uh, I'm in uh, violation, I guess, until I throw one in the stove. <laughs> yeah, so that's my question. No, I, I don't know. Like, I got two in the mails. So uh, can I apply like five times and get, uh, as long as they got my visa information, get five licenses? That's one of the questions I would have. Because yeah. if you're not allowed to have multiple licenses, then it just stands to reason that they would have to uh, revoke one and refund the money. So how much does yeah. it cost? So it's, I think it's like 50 bucks, and if you're a senior, it's uh, like well, 30? I'm, I'm a senior, so I think it's probably more like uh, 30. It's not the money part. But no, 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 no. I was just curious. I think it's around $39. Or okay. But what I'm saying is, just to my wife, maybe uh, all I'd have to do is uh, find another person that's uh, kind of very close to uh, my description and s- sell them that license for twenty nine dollars, thirty nine dollars. But I don't know, Patty. Uh, well, I get a little bit of fear about some of these people that the province hire. They're they're totally not mental giants, that's for sure. And I'm wondering what kind of screening they do when they interview these people. So, so they're, they're getting uh, pretty good bucks compared to uh, the uh, average person. 
Yeah, I mean, th- this is just sounds like it's a silly off-the-cuff type of decision. It's, it's, so, it's too silly to talk about, but I wouldn't uh, believe if anyone told me that story, I probably wouldn't believe it. I'd say, no, you're just pulling my leg, but uh, it's actually happened to me. And the girl said, well, I said, made some... You know, analogies and said, here's, here's this, if I owed you, you money, you'd want the money. She said, well, I can't argue with you, sir. I'm just a clerk, just a manager, and, and I wouldn't argue with her, of course. But uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to uh, talk to this manager if she ever does call me to uh, see what the deadline is for being uh, <laughs> too late. Yeah, so this is an office representing the Ministry of uh, Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, I assume, is it? Yeah, I'm going to have to see Mr. Mr. Bragg when he's through with the union people. <laughs> Listen, let me know if you get a call back from the manager. This seems like something that's just so infinitely easy to rectify. Oh, exactly. Like I, you know, you, you and you've had the same experience where you got uh, billed twice on your credit card for something, and you call the company or whatever, and they just reverse it, and you get a credit next time around. And uh, and uh, you know, lateness like this this event only happened in in April, I suppose. So it's it's not like it's happened three years down the road or anything like that. I don't know. May, maybe it's just something that uh, would uh, cause a little grief to their accounting system, and it's probably. I'll just tell that guy we can't. Uh, it's too late now. We can't give him any money back. <laughs> well, when we're talking about thirty-nine dollars inside the world of nine billion-dollar budget, they should be able to figure this one out. Oh, oh yes, yeah. I know. There's there's all kinds with the, the forestry. There, there's, I had a, another situation with a. <clears throat> with a camp I bought one time, and I went through the process. You got to complete a couple of affidavits and uh, <clears throat> send it all into them, and everything is hunky dory. But the only thing is, it uh, it's not processed. It doesn't get processed for a year down the road. And the fellow that I bought the camp from him, they were hounding him for his camp fee for the year because it wasn't switched yet to my name that's a year later I, they said take a while and then i said 30 days is no not an awful lot longer than that it's going to take a year later it wasn't fixed and the collections people in st john's are calling this poor bugger telling them that if he didn't pay up they're going to ruin his credit rating and all that <laughs> kind of stuff so i promptly called those people and i said no the captain my name for a whole year if you want someone to badger you badger me not him and then i wrote a letter to the manager of that outfit and said fix it within a week or I'll uh, maybe go and see one of the ADMs or the DM and get him to work some voluntary overtime on the weekend and he'll be able to fix it for me <laughs> and by the end of the week it was fixed and the guy got a letter and said well we won't hound you anymore but it seems like these uh, lower middle management people don't have much uh, of a creative mind when it comes to doing the work. Unfortunately so. Uh, I appreciate the time, John. Let me know when, when and if you hear from the manager. What happens? I, I will. I'll leave a message for you or, uh, or, get, or I'll get back to you somehow, sir. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Patty. Thank you. Anytime, John. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. I mean, come on, right? Uh, just a tidbit of information that I think many people were thinking about and talking about was a proposal coming from Marine Atlantic to increase their fuel surcharge from 13 to 17% just in time for tourist season. It's not going to happen until at least the 1st of December of this year. So they say that's because they've been monitoring 
ongoing fuel prices and because of what they see they are not going to increase the fuel surcharge they're also making some relation with the carbon tax that's coming this summer first of july so not gonna happen until december the first and i'll remind you one more time this directly from the government of canada Given economic recovery and the realities of facing the folks on PEI, they're actually freezing the tolls across the Confederation Bridge this year, but yet it came to the monitoring of fuel prices to do the same thing for our highway, our bridge, which is Marine Atlantic. That's uh, for your information. When we come back, John, or pardon me, Glenn, also wants to talk about licenses. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Glenn, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine. Thanks for asking, Glenn. How are you doing? Pretty good. good. Um, I'm just calling about that, you know, and that was just on there about the beer license. Yeah. Now, I only got part of each conversation, but uh, I know when you do apply for a beer license for a new plant, you do get two licenses for two different beers. So I, I don't know if that was what he was referring to or if he just got charged for, for two different licenses or not. But yeah. you do get two different beer licenses when you apply a new plan. Yeah, what happened to uh, John was that he went online to apply for his license and got to the part where they asked for his credit card information. He submitted it, but when he went to sub- uh, he put it in, when he went to submit, I think he said it came up a system error. So he assumed, like we would all assume, was, oh, well, it didn't go through. So he did it again. Consequently, he got charged twice for the one license. That was his uh, issue. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, that's the part I missed, so I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah, then they went on to tell him that apparently there's such a thing as, well, it's too late to reimburse the man his money. And he rightfully pointed out there was uh, an issue on their end. He didn't do anything wrong. It said system error, and then they told him that they can't reimburse him, which, of course, is complete nonsense. So he's still waiting to hear from the manager to get it all figured out. And as he pointed out once again, it's not about the money. It's about, look, this is their fault, not his fault. Yeah, it's true enough, sir. True enough. And if the shoe was on the other foot and they sent me money that I wasn't uh, eligible for, they wouldn't accept my answer being, well, I'm sorry, it's too late. You're not, uh, I can't give it back. <laughs> I guess that's what we're all going to have to try to do. Apparently so. <laughs> all right, sir, you have a great day. You too. Thanks for the call, Glenn. Thanks. All right, you're Bye. welcome. Bye-bye. All right, and in the world of big game licenses, and I think this is an important issue for many because we were talking about the stubborn food inflation that simply will not go away or certainly not coming back to worth as quick as other general inflationary pressures are. But in the world of big game, here's some of the numbers. So for moose, on the island... Uh, 27,575 licenses, almost 4,000 for non-residents, about 450 for -for not-for-profits. Labrador, the quota is about 330 or 340 moose licenses. The concern that people are sharing, and I think they're fair to offer this uh, thought, is that the reduction in licenses has only been felt by the local. So for the locals who use the moose hunt, not just because of their love of the outdoors and the love of the big game hunt, but it's food in the freezer. Food for them, food to share with their friends and their family, and the only losses that have been incurred with folks not able to get a license are the local hunters. So... I know that the government, obviously, considers the outfitters part of the economy, and they are. But, you know, is it fair for all of the reductions seem to be felt in one corner for the locals, not the non-residents? You know, we don't need to do away with or reduce the number for uh, not-for-profits for obvious reasons. And there's lots of good programs going on with uh, country food and the ability to donate it through uh, uh, 
uh, a butcher who has been accredited by the province for that food end up in food banks, like at Jody Williams, who we spoke to yesterday or this morning, pardon me, uh, at Bridges to Hope. So, yeah. And then it goes down about caribou. Can't remember the exact number on the island, but it's about 575 caribou licenses for on the island. There's uh, inside of that, there's about 215 for non-residents. And then, of course, they go on to talk about the fact that caribou hunting is still prohibited in Labrador. But the problem is, is that some folks don't care. And the caribou hunt continues. We know even from indigenous communities talking about the importance of the caribou hunt to their culture and traditions and what have you. Some of them acknowledge the fact that there will be no caribou for anybody's culture or tradition if the hunt continues because the herds have been decimated over the decades, right? It's just extraordinary to see numbers, whether it be Mealy Mountain or otherwise, the how strong it was not so long ago and now down to very few animals. And, of course, it becomes a tricky piece of business for governments, we're told, because the group that is, we're told, once again, responsible for this illegal hunt are Innu that come from Quebec. Remember, there was a couple of confrontations there years ago. But, again, if it's prohibited, it is prohibited, right? So those are the numbers. And if you're a local who did not get the license, but you know that the only people in your area that have not got a big game license, for moose or caribou in particular, are the locals, that's a conversation that I think is important in a variety of corners. Look no further than the fact that not every year people get a license. And there's almost, what, 27,575 out the door this hunting season, uh, which opens September, closes in March. Is that the... Is that the numbers? I think it is. Anyway, let's take a break for the news. Might be a good day to get on the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, area code 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director of the YWCA St. John's. That's Maria Gentle. Good morning, Maria. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Doing great. How about you? Good, thanks. I'm really excited to talk to you and get the message out about the YWCA St. John's Circle of Distinction Awards. Sure. Let's go. Okay. Well, the nominations are extending to June 4th. And the nominations for the uh, Circle of Distinction Awards are really about widening our community of excellence and really celebrating the achievements of women and gender-diverse people. Because, if I remember correctly, these were formerly known as the Women of Distinction Awards, right? You got it. And they still really provide a platform about celebrating and sharing empowering stories of women and gender-diverse folks. Um, the goal is really about inspiring others, about um, what folks achieve when they partic- participate in community. Um, and nominees are and continue to be folks who break barriers and overcome obstacles um, in community. And if you know someone in your community or in your circle who's worthy of a nomination, the only way they're ever going to be recognized is if you take the time to do the nomination. Just a couple of the awards, and I don't remember all the categories. I think there's five or six of them, including a lifetime achievement. But one that I think really gets the ball rolling and starts the conversation, if you get them young, you keep them forever, is I don't know what it's called, but it's for youth, I think between 18 and 24, maybe called Trailblazer or something like that. You got it. Okay. Amazing. So, yes, the yeah. Trailblazer Award. 
And indeed, you got it correct. It's 18 to 24-year-olds who are really already making a significant contribution to their community, um, folks who demonstrate leadership, innovation, and inspire others to follow their example. So that's, you're right, one of the sort of grounding awards that we always have in our categories. Inside the other categories, I know there's a Lifetime Achievement Award, but what are some of the other categories so that we can plant the seeds for the listener to think, okay, I know someone who's perfect for that? Yes, great. Well, we have a Social Justice and Advocacy Award, really for folks using their voice to speak to systemic injustices, folks who are making change towards equity and community, uh, and championing and creating space for diversity to be really prioritized and celebrated. Absolutely. You know, so some of these awards, we'll get to all the categories so we make sure we plant all the seeds, and then we'll just talk about, you know, how this actually fosters more and more, whether it be advocacy work or more and more individuals to recognize that there's gaps in the system. But let's get through the categories before we talk about how this is hopefully going to spur not only more conversation, but more people involved in certain areas of focus. You got it. Uh, So the other award is Equity at Work. And we're really looking for nominees who are employers that model and uphold equitable practices, who are making a difference for workers and community. And folks who have really a track record for building and sustaining practices that are supporting um, and mentoring women and gender diverse people, we're really looking at that gender equity um, angle. Do past winners stay involved, maybe play the role of mentor, or what happens after someone wins? That is such a great point, and one of the reasons why we're looking to widen the circle when we call the awards the Circle of Distinction Awards. We're really looking to how we can pull folks in and continue to build the exceptional community of YWCA St. John's. Uh, We have a really wonderful uh, group of folks who really feel strongly about the work of YWCA, and YWCA is really grounded in equity and social justice in St. John's for, you know, 100, uh, 100 years almost. We've been around since 1925, and people feel passionately about uh, the work that we do that is local action and national advocacy. So we're looking to develop the awards from a circle approach to really bring in past um, nominees and award winners to help us develop and build uh, the community here at YWCA St. John's. Because it's very similar conversations when we talk about uh, encouraging more women to get involved, say, for instance, politics. Because if you don't Mm -hmm. have examples or mentors to look up to, then you Mm -hmm. could be looking into the vacuum, which becomes very daunting. You're right. And so one of the things that we're doing this year with the award is really... um, looking at the categories that really reflect the work that we're doing at the agency. And so um, we're looking at economic and employment security as a real grounding factor for women and gender-diverse people's safety and autonomy. And so YWCA St. John's offers employment services and supports for young people um, in our launch program and our relaunch program for folks uh, 30-plus. Uh, really looking at ways that people can enter or re-enter the labor market and address the barriers that are there based on gender inequity and gendered labor that gets in the way, for example, childcare, um, of folks really being able to have that autonomy and economic security. So that's one of the things that we're looking at when we look at equity at work, right? It really matters when women and gender diverse folks have that access to opportunity. 
and far be it for me to add to that, but, you know, I, I think there's also a conversation to be had about age because that would apply to whoever, men, women, gender-diverse uh -huh. folks, because that, you know, we see the cost of living uh, type of pressures and more and more folks of senior years willing and wanting to work and the inability to get hired, whether it be just the mindset of a young manager saying, well, how long is this person going to be with us or the cost of training versus how long they'll be here, whether or not there's going to be some potential medical issues. But it, a, the ageism in the workforce is actually very real. I didn't mean to hijack this conversation with that, but I think that's part of those equity type of uh, conversations. You're speaking the same language because we see that in our relaunch program, folks who have exceptional experience um, across the lifespan looking to re-enter, enter, or have just overcome whatever barriers might have been in their way um, in that 30-plus category. And there's, there's lots that comes into play in that factor um, due to age. So you're, you're not wrong. And I think you're right as well about kind of addressing what's happening systemically um, for folks who are reaching a certain age and feeling the impact of the economy. Uh, how do I make a nomination of someone who I think is worthy? What do I do? Great question. So you can hop on to ywcastjohns.com. That's ywcastjohns.com. And you go to our website and you'll see the circle of distinction right on the top. And there you'll see the nomination package, the nomination consent form, and the nomination form and all of the information is right on our website and we really value the time and commitment people make in making these nominations we take it very seriously um, it is a process and so hop on there uh, get involved I know folks often um, reach out to you know another circle the circle around the individual they want to nominate and people pitch in and pull it together so luckily we are uh, able to extend the nominations to june 4th for people to really uh, make a consideration about uh, nominating someone excellent and we know there's lots of folks in the community who have overcome the barriers that are faced um, for women and gender diverse folks and we like to just take this opportunity to uplift those voices and those people who are really making a difference. And when will the uh, awards gala be? Great question. The nominations close on the 4th and the awards will be on the 25th of September. Appreciate the time this morning, Maria. Thank you. Well, thank you. To celebrate uh, women and gender diverse folks and September 25th, interestingly enough, is Gender Equity Week and that's what oh. we're here to celebrate. Give us a call prior to it so we can give it another bit of uh, awareness punch right here on the show. Thanks for your time this morning. Right on. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Maria Gentle. She's the ED, the Executive Director at the YWCA. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we're talking about Chinese interference in the foreign elections, I believe. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Um, a couple of things. I've been um, trying routinely to keep up to the news, but uh, the telegram uh, letter to the editor by Paul Martin, Mount Pearl, Friday, February 26th, uh, sorry, uh, May 26th, he's talking about the um, central bank digital currency. I had never heard of this thing, and it was quite an interesting letter. So that's one thing I just wanted to throw up in the air because um, I need some education on it, and it's sort of scary. The other one, 
which was on um, in the Globe and Mail on Saturday, May the 27th, um, about um, the Chinese interference in Canada and in its many, many ways. And the article is a big, huge pa- double page threats, interference, espionage activities are hiding in plain sight. And the thing that really came to mind, and I'll quote this. Not for nothing did a former senior thesis official recently shock the nation with his testimony that the behavior of our political leadership over the past 30 years on the China file borders on the treasonous and warrants serious jail time for the perpetrators. So um, this is sort of scary stuff that um, somebody has insidiously taken over our world, our, our world meaning Canada in this case. So I just throw this out for... Uh, clarification, shall we say. Well, let's dig into it. So let's start with digital currency. You know, so there's two forms. Digital currency could be crypto, which, of course, has a massive problem with fluctuations, volatility. It certainly has a problem with environmental impact. It has, it's not backstopped by anyone. But then there's a central bank digital currency, which is absolutely a concern that I think people are rightfully thinking about. Now, it's coming to some central banks. The Bank of Canada has been quite clear on this. They think it's a problem. They think it's a problem because what we've seen, especially in the United States, is a run on the banks, right? When you hear stories of one bank has become insolvent or what have you, then, of course, people go to the bank and they want their cash because they'd want to be left on the outside looking in. Now, we do have the CDIC, which backstops your money up to, I think, $100,000 cash in any individual account. But the problem with a central bank digital currency are many. The potential to be hacked, number one. The fact that you lose all your financial privacy so the money can be followed, can be taxed, as opposed to if I have cash in my pocket, I can spend it wherever I want. Nobody knows what I'm spending it on. And for the most part, unless we're talking about criminal activity, then I don't want anybody to know that I spent my money at that restaurant or that bar or that shop or wherever the case may be. So there are distinct problems with digital currency, central bank digital currency. Yes, I agree. So is this something that's um, coming down the pike, more or less, that we're going to be having to put up with that sort of crap? Well, there's a worry. Uh, some central banks are actually quite bullish on establishing it. And the Bank of Canada, though, I remember reading a release from them saying they think it could be a problem. So it doesn't seem to me like the Bank of Canada is as quick to want to impose digital currency, central bank digital currency, because I do think it's a mistake, and I think the backlash will be real, and so it should be. Yeah, so this would be highlighted or headed up by the the government, hey, uh, to make this happen. Well, the government could indeed make it happen, but I think the problem is how the thought process is executed at the central banks themselves. So if the Bank of Canada, and let me see if I can remember some of the numbers. So... Still, one in three purchases in this country are made by cash. So people want to lean on their credit card, their debit card, or whatever the case may be. It's still two-thirds of the transaction. So in large part, we've done some of this to ourselves because it's much easier for anybody to have access to my visa records and my internet record, or pardon me, my debit card record, versus how I spend my cash. So it's about one in three transactions are still cash in this country. Now... When the Bank of Canada talks about speed and security and uh, all the rest of it and the potential to have a run on the banks if it's all centralized, they pose some very serious questions as about to whether or not this is a good or bad idea. I personally think it's a bad idea. Now, some businesses have already moved away from it for a couple of reasons. Because cash is cumbersome. 
and cash requires a lot more work at the retail level than it does if simply you have an arrangement which you pay a fee to a credit card company or in this case a potential fee to the central bank for a digital currency so I don't know if this is common or not but I think it's uh, from where I sit it's absolutely worthy of conversation yeah I do, I do too and the other one of course is the Chinese involvement in our world hey infiltrating universities and everything else uh, so I don't know where it's going, but it's sort of scary. But the issue there is, and I think this has kind of got lost in some of the more recent conversations about foreign interference, is that this is not new. People are pretending like 2019 and 2021 are the first time that any nefarious bad actor, foreign speaking, has been interfering, whether it be directly or with information campaigns. And now, of course, it's been exacerbated with social media. But foreign interference, whether it be Chinese or Russian or Iran or whoever, this has been going on for absolutely decades. Yeah, now well, he, we're he says in the article, uh, um, uh, political leadership over the past 30 years. Okay. So on, you know, it's, it's crazy the, that this is happening. And I mean, how, if I, I couldn't help thinking it would make a great article for a spy novel, uh, you know, set up a few people who were dead from mysterious causes and uh, then chase down all these articles where they're infiltrating the universities, they're infiltrating the government, they're infiltrating everywhere. And um, you could even see uh, the bad, our, our political leaders being uh, mounting bad things against them as a part of the whole um, um the whole cover-up, more or less, sort of thing, you know? Well, it's, it's a fascinating way to, you could write a book on it. There's two different things here. There's interference in uh, the elections, as opposed to infiltration of government. Because, obviously, we got ourselves, or the country got itself in some trouble with China based on uh, keeping that Huawei executive based on an extradition order in the United States. That started the ball rolling. Then, of course, became the capture of Michael Spavor, Michael Korvig. But here's a question that I'm also really not sure why the only focus for some parties in this country is China. Why is that? So we do know, based on the most recent report from David Johnson, is that the 11 candidates in question included seven liberals and four conservatives. Why but why are we saying if there's a public inquiry required, it's only about China? when it should be about every foreign interference. I don't care what country it is. So if Russia's involved and there's something we could do to further protect ourselves, or the Iranians are involved, or the Chinese are involved, or the Americans are involved, or anybody, that's the integrity of the institution. It's not just one country, because that's kind of making things up for political convenience. Uh, we should be doing everything to protect the institutions, regardless of who we're talking about. Yeah, so... So does somebody got to put some teeth or something into CSIS or, or some power, more power than they've, they've got now? The government doesn't even be listening to them. Yeah, well, we do know there's a distinct problem with how we gather intelligence and furthermore how we disseminate and who gets to see intelligence and in what time frame they get to see it. So we've learned a bit more than we knew probably well, for many Canadians that we knew in the not-so-distant uh, past that we don't have our house in order. Not right, to the yeah. extent that we need to, because if we talk about erosion and trust, erosion in the integrity or the faith in democratic institutions, that's a problem for everybody. Uh, it doesn't matter who or what party you support. It just simply does not. You could be a staunch liberal supporter. If that erosion continues to take place the way it is, that's bad for you. If you're a conservative supporter, bad for you. NDP supporter, bad for you. An independent thinker, bad for you. A center, you know, a more centerized uh, center. A political watcher and leaner, bad for you also. So sometimes it's really worth our collective effort to shelve the political narrative and rhetoric because this kind of stuff is bigger than politics. 
It just is. And so we kind of get down the rabbit holes of, well, my party thinks this or my party thinks that. Your party doesn't have all the answers, regardless of what party you're talking about. And things like integrity and the faith and the veracity of elections, that's something we all should be concerned with. It doesn't matter if you like Trudeau, Poliev, Singh, uh, or Elizabeth May or anybody else. It just doesn't matter. Yeah, I agree. Anyhow, uh, good, good, good topics. I think uh, and intriguing. Uh, wherever it's going to go, God knows. Hey, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm glad you called this morning. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Bye. You, you too. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, because there is a difference between crypto and the volatility and the fact it's not backstopped. Some people refer to it as a Ponzi scheme. I don't know much about it to be honest. But then it's the central bank digital currency. A much different conversation. Now. In some corners, it's exaggerated to the nth degree, and you will only be able to buy X, Y, and Z based on your carbon footprint and things. And that's some of the arguments that people make where not so sure that's the reality that any central bank is considering, you know, because central banks come from many different jurisdictions with different political leaders and their ideology. But it's the fact that they'll know exactly what I'm doing every single time. I like, I like having a few bucks in my pocket. I don't have enough cash to have a big bankroll in my front pocket, but... Those things, I think, are fair arguments or fair discussions, pardon me. Now, when some people are willing and wanting to start with the absolute extremes, I guess we can reverse engineer it and just you know, paint the picture that is the most bleak and start with how to avoid it. But it's just the very fundamentals about the run-on financial institutions, the fact that it might be able to be hacked. I mean, things like that. Now, the banks can be hacked anyway, but I think that's a fair ball. I'm glad Tom, uh, I'm glad Tom called. All right, good show today. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.